There's something curious about this broadcast. T-minus 10, 9, 8, 7, and we have main engine start. 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, and liftoff. This is TGP nominal. Commence episode now. All systems remain nominal. Nominal, nominal, nominal. Hello everybody and welcome to this special edition of TGP Nominal, your monthly look at all things science fact and science fiction. Special for two reasons. Firstly, we're celebrating our fifth birthday as this episode is our first episode of our fifth season. Happy birthday! Secondly, we're joining with others all over the world to celebrate World Space Week. And this podcast has been registered as an official online event. So if you have joined us from the World Space Week website, welcome on board. And I hope you enjoy your time with us. What is World Space Week? Well... World Space Week is an international celebration of science, technology and their contribution to the human race. The United Nations General Assembly declared in 1999 that World Space Week will be held each year from the 4th of October to the 10th of October. And these dates have two special events that they actually commemorate. The first one was on the 4th of October 1957, which was the launch of the first ever human-made satellite, Sputnik 1, thus opening the way for space exploration. And then on October the 10th 1967 was the signing of the Treaty on Principles Governing the Activities of States in the Exploration and Peaceful Uses of Outer Space, including the Moon and other celestial bodies. World Space Week consists of space education and outreach events held by space agencies, aerospace companies, schools, planetariums, museums and astronomy clubs around the world in a common time frame, which is why we decided to launch our podcast during this time. During World Space Week in 2017, there was more than 4,000 registered events in 82 countries. World Space Week is coordinated by the United Nations with the support of the World Space Week Association, or the WSWA. The World Space Week Association leads a global team of national coordinators who promote the celebration of World Space Week within their own countries. The goals of World Space Week include educating people around the world about the benefits that they receive from space, gaining public support for space programs, and inspiring young people to engage with science, technology, engineering, and maths. Now, before I carry on with the show, I, I need to bring in a couple of people to the proceedings. Firstly, my regular co-host, John Berger. And secondly, our resident astronomer, Ross Hockham from UK Astronomy. John. What? Five seasons. We're old. <laughs> that is really hard to believe. It's been a long journey, but it's been an absolute fantastic ride, hasn't it? It's been fun. I mean, we, we've been able to interview uh, and meet some amazing people over this. Yeah, and I really didn't think we would get to meet the, the people that we have. Um, I certainly didn't think that NASA would get in touch with us. No. This. That's impressive. We've met some really interesting people. We've got a really good team around us getting involved, including your good self, Ross. I'm always here. You know that. I'm always here for you. It's been a busy time for you again, hasn't it? September's been slightly quieter than usual, but only because it was my birthday. <laughs> so I kind of sat there and I was like, right, I'm going to chill out for my birthday. This month, I'm not going to put so much in like the other months. So really, like the astronomy's ramping up now because kind of like October to March, 
is when the good stuff happens, when it starts getting dark and really starts going for it. But yeah, I, I was lucky enough. My wife actually bought me tickets to go and see uh, the new scientist live at the uh, Excel Centre London. As people know, I'm a firefighter, as we day job. I did two day shifts, two night shifts, and then when I finished my night shift in the morning, I went straight to London on my motorbike. I was there for about four or five hours listening to talks and meeting people. And yeah, have you ever been? <laughs> you might not have been, John, but... I <laughs> know. Uh, there's, there's some transportation issues for that. It's only a £40 ticket. (laughs) (laughs) You're a funny guy. (laughs) Have you ever been, Mark? No, I've been meaning to, actually. Um, It is a very good event. There's a lot to see and a lot to do. It's all science-based. They have different sections for everything. So you've got, like, a human section, which talks about, you know, all stuff about medicine and the human brain and the human body. And you kind of get four or five talks in each section. There's a Cosmo section, which, funnily enough, is the one I kind of stayed in, being an astronomer. That was my bag. Outside of the talks, the stands for everything, all outside of them. So all outside the Cosmodas, all the stands for, you know, people. I mean, I, I have to admit, I was suckered in and I bought a piece of the moon. <laughs> in fact, my dad bought me a piece of the moon because he gave me the money for my birthday. And when I was sat there, I saw this lump of moon for about, I think it was about 50 pounds. And it's a nice little chunk. And it's all certified because I actually chatted to the guy and he's actually a police forensic scientist or something. So I thought... Well, he's got to be trustworthy, surely. So I chatted to him. I went, you know what, I'm going to get a bit because then when I go to my events, I can look at the moon with the kids, show them it, and then go, do you want to touch a bit of the moon? I was like, it's right here. This came from the moon, from an impact of maybe one of the craters you saw and as you know, burnt up in our atmosphere and entered Earth. A piece of the moon. That's mental. It's a steal. <laughs> at 50 quid, that's my bit of moon. I own that now. Talking about World Space Week, funnily enough, I bumped into a guy from the uh, British Interplanetary Society. It's not easy to say, but they were there and they were chatting to me and they gave me loads of uh, leaflets and posters put up for World Space Week because obviously they're, they're well into it. And uh, they said, get involved. I've got their leaflet right in front of me now. And it's to say the world's largest, largest space event get involved organize a school event a public event private event existing event go do whatever you want to do any ideas you can find it on their website i'm going to plug this for them because i did promise that i'll say a bit about them so it's www.bis little line space.com slash wsw but if you put in british interplanetary society it will come up on facebook and google and stuff like that and you'll be able to get involved there but please do get involved with it because it's a great event Mm-hmm. And there's loads of people out there willing to help you, to teach you, you know, to actually support you do the event if you want to do your own event. So, you know, to go to New Scientist Live and see them there and chat to them. Now I've come to you guys and you guys are now talking about it. I'm like, how cool is that? Everyone's getting involved. Everyone's working together. That's what I love. Awesome. Now, John, last episode, you wasn't available because you were on family duty. I, I believe you went to Niagara Falls. I did. And it was Awesome. It was actually sunny. It was not raining. Wow. <laughs> I know. It was like, wow, this is fantastic. And then, of course, the next day we come home and it's raining. So that that's the way it works. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Niagara Falls is amazing to look at. I'd seen it before on a, well, my Tenocon trips, but the family had never been there. My kids had never been to New York State. So this was a big thing for, for everybody on that one. And it was it was fantastic. And we can actually say... We were in a waterfall. Niagara Falls is actually made out of three different waterfalls. There's Horseshoe Falls, which is the main one that everybody knows about. Then there's the American Falls. And then there's one other one. Can't remember the name of it. But there's something called the Cave of the Winds, which is really kind of dumb because you don't go into a cave. (laughs) It goes all the way down to the river level. And you walk around and you end up walking up 
the rocks that this waterfall comes crashing down on. And so you're getting the spray, you're getting the wind, but then you would get when you get to the top of that, the deck that you walk on, you can actually stand in one corner and the water is coming down from the falls right behind you and splashing on a rock right behind you so you get soaked. <laughs> I'm not granted they give you a poncho and all of that to try to keep you dry, but it doesn't cover everything. <laughs> so yeah, I can actually say that I walked underneath the waterfall, which was really cool. That's the problem with these ponchos being one size fits all. Really, really <laughs> thin too. So but you know whatever it worked. I've used the ones they have at Disney and uh, yeah, I know what you mean. <laughs> yeah. But then just just seeing my kids looking at this because it's water falling over a crevice. Okay, you'd think big deal, but they're just looking at this thing. When you get there and you see it and you hear the water roaring, it is so cool. We got there early enough that we could see a lot of rainbows from the mist, that residual from it. And I know that my kids were also completely blown away because right there, maybe only a couple hundred feet, is a whole different country because right there's Canada. That is the weird thing is the fact that you've got this just one body of water that's separating America from Canada and they both share the same falls. So most people think of Niagara Falls they think of Canada but they don't realize that it's also on the other side as well yeah well the the view from Canada is better because on America's side you're actually next to the falls whereas in Canada you're across from it but the Canadian side is more of a tourist trap and and there there are more things to actually do regarding the falls in on the American side but still next year I will make sure that they have passports so we'll be able to check out both sides they have like would they have huts or boats floating down for you to, <laughs> to get across. Well, I mean, the passport yeah. sort of control. I'm sure that they have people watching to see if people swim across <laughs> or not. Uh, not to mention the boats that actually go up to the waterfall. So, yeah. yeah, that's not really. But, I mean, they do have a bridge that you can walk across as long as you have your passport. I never knew that. I think that's brilliant. Mm-hmm. Well, so I know that, halfway yeah. through, you have to kind of go, here's my passport. Well, when you get to the other side, when you get to the other side, they'll check it and (laughs) they won't let you in. Well, I know the same thing over in Detroit, because Detroit is right across the river from Windsor, Canada, I think it is. And they actually have a marathon that starts in America and ends in Canada. If you don't have your passport, you can't finish the marathon. (laughs) Oh, man, if you if you leave it at home. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> you ran all that way I guess people when they're on the bridge they kind of put one foot on one side and one foot on the other and say hey <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say to that Finn they go ah not touching ah. <laughs> <laughs> but no, it was a lot of fun now with this being a double celebration we're packing a lot into this episode After a short break, Ross will be bringing you his unique take on the cosmos as he guides us through October skies. And then later on, we'll be playing some of the interviews that we conducted at the inaugural Space Rocks event earlier in the year. And finally, astronomy author Richard Day Bartlett will be joining us for a bit of a chat and a Q&A session. So buckle up and brace yourself because TGP Nominal Episode 5.1 is about to launch into the podosphere. Hi, I'm Matt Damon. I play astronaut Mark Watney in The Martian. In the story, my character is accidentally stranded on Mars. Sending people to Mars and returning them safely is the challenge of a generation. The whole world held its breath when the Curiosity rover landed in 2012. The boot prints of astronauts will follow those rover tracks thanks to innovations happening today. NASA's journey to Mars begins on the International Space Station, some 250 miles overhead, where we're learning how humans can thrive over long periods without gravity. 
Here at home, people are working across the country on the new Orion spacecraft and space launch system rocket that will carry astronauts farther than ever before. When we invent new technologies for exploration, it benefits all of humanity. But more than that, the journey to Mars will forever change our history books, rewriting what we know about the red planet and expanding a human presence deeper into the solar system. Follow NASA's journey to Mars at www.nasa.gov. On canvas with paint in the artist's school, it is red that is hot and blue that is cool. But in science we show, as the heat gets higher, a star will glow red like the coals of a fire. Raise the heat some more, and what is in sight? Behold, the star glows bright white. But the hottest of all, I say unto you, is neither red nor white when a star has turned blue. Well, Mark, John, and Liz, I wanted to congratulate you and say happy birthday on your five-year anniversary of TGP Nominal. What an amazing ride you guys have had you know, over the last five years with, with your amazing special guests, the amount of information you've covered, uh, the stories that you've shared with your listeners. Uh, it's, it's been fascinating to follow. I know everybody out there, Podcast Land, is, is enjoying the content you're producing, so Again, happy birthday, congratulations, and have fun celebrating your fifth birthday. Blast off into the potosphere with TGP Nominal. So, welcome back. Now, Ross, it's your moment with what's going on in the skies for October. Now, it's going to be a bit different for you because... You're used to just me there in case you have a problem with something that you can't pronounce, and now you've got two of us. So, uh... <laughs> yeah, unfortunately for me as well, October is best for Uranus. So I imagine there'd be lots of fun going on at my expense. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I have to talk about two things before I start talking about what's going on, and one of them is two events that we've got going on. On the 19th of October, if there anyone's around sort of Buckinghamshire area or even further afield if you want to come down come along on the 19th we've got an event at Stowe House again so it's a lovely building it's a massive mansion and we are literally doing the astronomy just outside the huge steps that are all lit up and it's, it's a beautiful place to actually go and do it and the views there astronomy wise amazing it's got a nice dark sky it's all facing exactly where you want it to face you can see all the planets and the nebulas and everything that's up there so if you want to come along to that on the 19th you can check out our Facebook group or you can actually go to www.ukastronomy.org and the events on there. Or you can actually go to the Stowe House website, just Google Stowe House, and they've got it there as well. I think it's called Stars at Stowe. Yeah. For anybody who doesn't know, that's S-T-O-W-E. Yes. Yeah, see, I'm not very good at this sort of thing. Mark's a lot better. <laughs> so, yeah, Stowe, S-T-O-W-E, House or Stowe School as well. That's part of it. Yeah. So, yeah, that's a great event. That'd be a really good one. It's usually sold out, and then they want us to do more. Stowe House have asked us, hopefully, if the National Trust agree and everything like that, they do like a camp out night there or a couple of nights where they have people go there and actually camp out in tents all around and they have dinner and stuff like that. 
and they've invited us hopefully next year which is then our fifth anniversary as well there's loads to celebrate <laughs> then uh, yeah hopefully we'll be there to be able to show you the stars as well if clear so that's something to look forward to in the future and then the whole of October we do a photo competition and each month you have a different category to try and include everything we want people to use their iPhones we want people to use you know take pictures through their binoculars their telescopes their actual cameras without telescopes so we try and do something for everyone all you know sun, moon, planets nebulous stars to get a whole range of stuff we've actually now got a gallery we had it last year in March gallery this year is actually October so it's in Olney spelled O-L-N-E-Y and it's at the Cowper and Newton Museum I'm not going to spell that so the Cowper and Newton Museum in Olney you'll see all the winners and the runners up from last year's event and then also the, the year before so 2016-2017 all the pictures will be up there I'm going to write a little thing so you'll know what you're looking at, a little bit of information about it, how they took it and stuff like that. So if you want to go along there, I believe it's free to go in and look at all the pictures. But if you want to actually look around the house, the museum itself, then please do. Because if they get extra funds to help their you know, museum carry on and help us do this. And some of these photographs that are on display are just absolutely phenomenal. I mean, you'd think that these are, you know, professionally taken photographs but they are members of the facebook group there's one or two professionals that are in the group that put their pictures in that up but the whole idea for us is you know i'm an amateur astronomer i'm nothing special i'm just a random guy that got a telescope and a passion that's it and that's what these guys have got i mean it's all it's this uk based so it's all around the uk and the pictures they've got and they get i always say to everyone you can get those pictures you can get them from your garden, you can get them from, you know, just popping out to a field somewhere. I always say, the moon, you can get fantastic pictures just using your phone through binoculars or, you know, a telescope and just holding it up against the eyepiece there. Take a picture. They're as good, I hate to say this because Mick Scott will kill me, my right-hand man, because he spends hours photographing the moon with all the special gear. They're, they're just as good. I actually submitted a photograph of the moon that I took with my camera without a telescope or anything and it actually got printed in all about space magazine so if i can do that then anybody can <laughs> right so yeah so mark right never done anything like that before me founder and director apparently of uk astronomy never had anything put in a magazine <laughs> that's what it's about it's about getting beginners and amateurs out there to just have fun and take pictures so yeah, if you want to go and see it, it's all there. So Olney and Stowe. Now I guess I better talk about what's going on. Yep. Right, I'm going to start off talking about the planets. So the first one I'm going to go for is Mars, because at the moment it's one of the best to see. It's still really bright in the sky. It's really easy to spot. As we know, it's kind of got loads of dust all over it that makes it red, because uh, the dust is made of iron, which then oxidises, turns to rust. So it's really, really bright in the sky. It's up most of the night. There's not a lot of detail if you look through a telescope that you can actually see at the moment, because it is quite low in the sky. It may not look it when you see it in the sky, but it is still quite low compared to, you know, the place you want to see when you're looking is pretty much above you, because you're looking through less atmosphere. So when you're looking lower down, you're going through more atmosphere and there's more haze. and It's still quite warm, actually, considering. They're saying we're going to have an Indian summer, aren't they? So it's going to be nice and warm, which is not great for astronomy. We like cold nights because then the air is stiller and you can see more. But you can still see detail there. You can still see dark patches. You might just make out some ice caps. I think the dust storm is pretty much gone from what I've heard. <laughs> but I still can't believe that, that when it's at its best and its closest it's ever going to be, it has a humongous dust storm. Thanks, Miles. We love you. <laughs> but yeah, have a look at Miles. Even with binoculars, you might just be able to make out some dark features on it. You've got uh, Jupiter, but sadly, the king of the planets is on its way out. Aww. 
it's kind of the end of the month is going to be so low as the sun sets it's pretty much going to set with it so you won't be able to see it for much longer so probably won't be till later next year it'll be back up again so yeah just after the sun sets and as i always say never look at the sun if you do you're an idiot and you'll go blind so don't do it never look at the sun whatsoever unless you've got special gear like me once the sun is down i never say any you know arc meters or whatever's going on or degrees or whatever's going on. i say look slightly to the left it's right there you should just be able to make out its four main moons that'll be there if you have a quick peek saturn is in between mars and jupiter oh it's really good at the moment i don't know why it just looks fantastic i think because it's slightly colder we've gone past it so it's not at its best it's not as opposition or anything but you're definitely going to be able to see its rings i saw it literally last Sunday I was out at a dark site that we were testing out me and Mick out of all the planets it looked the best it was really really cool and if you're really lucky it does have a few of its moons around it that you will be able to see Titan being the largest and that moon you'll see it changes nightly every night you look at it the moon will move around it so you can actually see the moon moving around Saturn as well as its rings you can't say no to that now the planet that's at its best this month is Uranus and for our American friend Uranus since when did Best. that become an American pronunciation? Well, you say everything different, don't you? Well, that no, we say it correctly. <laughs> you guys, oh, have, right. you guys have been pronouncing it that way. We realized the right way, so we right decided way. to change. <laughs> <laughs> the way to make it not sound funny. <laughs> well, Actually, to be fair, he's got a valid point there. <laughs> we say Uranus, he says Uranus. Let's call the whole thing off. You know, that, that could go on to a side tangent of uh, American um, Puritanism. I'm not going to go there. Well, like aluminum. You saved a syllable. <laughs> what are you complaining about? I think we need another show about this. It'd be cool. <laughs> silent letters and not silent table. letters. Yeah. <laughs> Elevator. Herbs. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Turbo. Yeah. Oh right, we'll my. talk about this after. Let me get through this because yes. I'm going to forget where I am, what I'm doing. <laughs> yes, so Uranus or Uranus is uh, it's about to reach opposition, which means that it's going to slightly brighten because it means the Earth is kind of in our orbit. We're getting close uh, to it. It's millions of miles away, so it's not really that close. But, you know, we're close to it in our orbit. It's the best it's going to be for us. And uh, that's towards the end of the month. So the 24th is when it actually officially reaches opposition. It's meant to be its best. When I was out last Sunday with Mick at this dark site, we had a full moon. And uh, someone on my Facebook group, because whenever we're out, we always post in the Facebook group and get people involved and say, oh, we're looking at this. Can you see it? Or, you know, people that haven't got telescopes, we post pictures for them and say what we can get and how it looks. And uh, I was able to find it because I was actually challenged by one of the members to find Uranus. And when you're asked by someone to find Uranus and, you know, you're out of a friend in a field in the dark and you've had, you know, a bottle of wine or something. What? Yeah. Luckily, I managed to and it was the right thing I was looking for, not Mick. And yes, I found it. It's in the constellation of Aries at the moment. And even with a nearly full moon, I had a 10 inch reflector scope. So that obviously helped because it's got a big aperture. But I did try it with my 70ED, which is only a small refractor scope so it's the one you know like you look through the end of it rather than to the side of it i managed to find it i managed to find it i did i had to star hop but i had to star hop the crap out of it it was really hard to find <laughs> i had to star hop through i think it was cetus constellation up some stars and actually find this little marble it's like a blue marble just floating there in space but if i could see it and take a picture just using my phone to then post into the group to prove to people I'd found it, then you can. 
if I can do it, you guys can do it. So it's there and, you know, Uranus is going to be at its best. Whereas I was doing it when it wasn't. So, yeah, definitely try and find it. It's a really cool planet to see. And you'll see the blue sort of marble. You don't actually need that big a telescope. It's, you know, five inches or bigger, hopefully. It has actually, it has got rings. So you may, you may be able to spot these rings if you're really, really, really lucky. So, yeah, if I can get it with my iPhone, go out and do it. Go and find it. Have a look. Get a Stellarium on your iPhone or Android. I think Android does other stuff, doesn't it? I'm always confused of Android because they don't allow certain things like Stellarium. You, you need to keep the uh, Android comments to us. Android users, Stellarium mobile sky map is $2.49 on the Google Play Store. Awesome. See, the only reason I say things like is because uh, on the Facebook group, there's always an iPhone Android banter thing going on. And, well, I had to put out an alternative one out there, one that I've been using for years, and I, I think it's free, is simply called SkyMap, and it does the same thing. But yeah, just get a planetarium on your phone, have a look, find where it is, hunt for it, it's good fun. So that's that one out of the way, thank God. And then it's on to Neptune, the furthest. Uh, it's placed in Aquarius at the moment, and it's a pretty good time to find it, just because it's quite high in the sky. Uh, you can spot it with binoculars, so that's something quite cool. The furthest one you can still see, even in binoculars, but you're going to need a tripod or a very steady hand because it is quite faint. With a telescope, definitely the best thing to see it with, but have a go if you've got binoculars. Why not? You might see the furthest planet in the solar system. Go for it. You might see its main moon, Triton. It's actually quite bright, and uh, this we've talked about, isn't it? It's, it's one of the only moons that's actually got a really thick atmosphere really really thick so it's slightly out of the ordinary compared to all the others officially we're now headed into sort of autumn winter and sort of like the dark months as i call them so it's great for me october to march the best time for astronomers if you're not into the sun or you know taking pictures of flares and things like that this is where it really goes for it the night starts dark at about 7 8 p.m and that leaves you ample time to get home from work you know have dinner pop out there Try not to ignore the wife too much or husband. Get out there and see stuff. There's loads of stuff to see. Especially around sort of the 9th is the best time because we've got a new moon. So the moon's out of the way. We've got darker nights. Brilliant. You can see all that like deep space stuff that I love. Unfortunately, on the 24th, when Uranus or Uranus <laughs> is at its best, we actually do have a full moon that's in the way, <laughs> which is always the way. But you should still be able to spot it with a keen eye and a dark sky, hopefully. If not, any time around this month or next month, you'll be able to see it quite good. Right, I'm going to quickly go through the month then. So on the 8th, you've got the uh, Draconig meteor shower. Now, that's when it actually peaks on that night, but it'll be happening probably a night either side of it. It'll be radiating from the dragon's head, because Draco is actually a dragon in the sky. It's also coinciding with a close pass of its uh, parent comet, because as we know, meteor showers happen when you go through the tail of a comet. Generally, there's a couple that from asteroids, and the comet is actually up and is a great object to spot. Especially, again, as I said, the moon's out of the way. So around about the 12th, near the star Sirius, you can see this comet, hopefully. And it's going to be binocular. You can see it with binoculars, it's bright enough. So get out there, look around the star Sirius on the 12th, and you might see like a, a greeny sort of fuzzy haze. And that'll be the comet. If you're really lucky and it's dark, you might see a tail. Who knows? Comets are so unpredictable, we don't know what they do. So get out there and have a look, because then you can think, hang on a minute, I saw a shooting star there. That might have come from the tail of the comet you are now looking at. It's crazy. Do it. On the 10th, you've got the, because uh, it's Taurus. So I'm going to go for Taurid, but it could be Taurid meteor shower. That's predicted to peak pretty much... 
There's not many, I don't think, coming from it. Have you heard of the Pleiades or the Seven Sisters? Mm -hmm. Yes, really famous cluster of stars, really nice bright blue. They're cool. If you can look at them with binoculars, amazing. And it's going to be coming from there pretty much. So you can have a look at the Pleiades or the Hades, which is the V just below. They're meant to be brothers and sisters because there's seven of each. And yeah, it's Taurus the bull, so it forms the head of the bull. Just around there, there's going to be a few more meteors. None of these meteors are big showers, but sometimes you, the small ones, you know, impress more because you might get a massive fireball, a big chunk come through the sky. And you think, wow, that's mental, I saw that. You've got the 11th, Jupiter will be close to the moon, just as the sun sets, as I said, never look at the sun, and it'll be slightly to the bottom left of the moon. So you'll be able to see the moon and Jupiter together. Great for a picture. If you've got your phone out, have a go. On the 14th, the moon then moves backwards a bit across the sky towards the planet Saturn. So then it's a good time to spot. If you haven't seen Jupiter or Saturn, look for the moon and you'll know that the blob next to it, I always call it a white blob, will be it. Saturn, I think, is slightly yellower. And then if you get binoculars out, you can even see its rings of binoculars. So you can see the moon and Saturn right there on the 14th. On the 16th, now Mark should know this one, the lunar X and V. Do you remember that? Yep. Excellent. So yeah, on the 16th, you can see that. It's around about 7 p.m. And it's pretty much where... I always say the Terminator, they call it a Terminator, I have no clue why, but the Terminator, I always say it's not a killer robot. I am tired of the same old phases. It's just the shadow. Where the shadow sort of goes, it's going to brush against, like over the top of a couple of craters that actually create an X and a V on the moon, which is quite cool to take a picture of. So on the 16th, I know I know people have done it before in our Facebook group and you mention it, so yeah. it's there to be grabbed, go for it. The 18th, it's Mars's turn to have the moon by it. So then you can see Mars by the moon. You could get a picture of all three of the planets with the moon there. How cool is that? It'll just be to the bottom right of the moon. And you, you can't miss it. It's really bright at the moment. Mars is fantastic. On the 21st, you have another meteor shower, the Orionid. But as we know, around the 24th, 21st, that sort of area, the moon's going to start getting in the way. It's going to be quite bright. It does radiate from uh, Orion, funnily enough, the constellation, which everyone should know because it's one of the most famous ones with his belt. And he's a hunter. And where his raised arm is, that's roughly where it radiates from. So that's where they're going to be coming from. And it's kind of near the red giant star Betelgeuse, which is the one that's meant to explode, which please just hurry up and do it because that would be cool. And on the 27th, the moon is going to now move towards the star Aldebaran, or Aldebaran, as you want to say. That star is going to be to the right of it, and that's just an orange giant star that represents the bullseye in Taurus. So you should know Taurus by now, hopefully, because there'd be a meteor shower there, and there's all sorts of Pleiades and Hyades and stuff going on, cool stars to see. So that's a good, cool thing to see, another picture you could take. And then last but not least, you'll be pleased, because you don't have to listen to my voice anymore. On the 28th, the clocks go back. Every year we have to change it back and forth and for no real reason now. So really, let's get rid of it, you know, because the kids have to come home when it's darker. Just make sense. <laughs> Didn't we say something along the lines of the, the guy that actually came up with the idea for that was something to do with Chris Martin from Coldplay, wasn't it? His yeah. Great-grandfather. Yeah, yeah, Chris Martin was definitely mentioned. I remember doing it. <laughs> We we'll have to listen back now. He never actually got it enforced, though, did he? It was when he he died, and then a few years later, yeah, I yeah, think MPs spoke about it and then enforced it. Because we made a point of saying that Coldplay actually did a song called Clocks. Yes, it's all about his great grandfather. So it's uh, yeah, it's kind of strange. Yeah, I do, I do believe that was a bit of information you knew. <laughs> I think that came out of your the brain that is Mark Taylor. Yeah. <laughs>
Sorry about that. That was a very quick, here's what's going on, everything that's up. But yeah, it's mostly about, you know, the planets and where the moon is at the moment. Awesome. And then the planets are going to disappear. And then I'll talk about nebulas and constellations and hopefully get people learning the skies like that. But at the moment, the planets are up. So look at the planets. They're really cool. That's awesome. So we're going to take another short break. And when we come back, it's time for... Space Rocks! Rock on! Hi, I'm Dallas Campbell, and welcome to Space Rocks. Beneath you is groaning and creaking. Cryogenic fuel is boiling off. And then you get the word from your Russian instructor, we're off. This is a galaxy cluster forming right there. And we're very, very lucky to have the project scientist of Rosetta with us here. Please welcome Matt Taylor. I'm a local lad, born in London, so it's nice to come back here and talk to people and say, you too can go to European Space Agency. been brilliant the reaction from the audience has been wonderful the questions have been great i've learned an awful lot nice to meet you you can have the earth brian may's been here one of my own heroes how cool is this thank you so much i've really loved it so welcome back now tgp nominal were invited to attend space rocks which is quite literally an out of this world event that took place at the indigo 2 which is a more intimate capacity venue within the o2 complex to give you an idea of the different size the o2 arena itself seats 20,000 people whereas the indigo 2 seats 2500 so the event had a much more up close feel to it now alan taylor shearer and i decided to meet at king's cross station because that's where both our trains came into london and get into our hotel at east india docks which is minutes away from the o2 on the dlr the docklands light railway should have been plain sailing but we forgot one thing that had to be put into the mix space rocks took place on the same sunday as the london marathon <laughs> Oh. <laughs> and half, oh. the, half the roads and stations <laughs> around the Docklands I shouldn't laugh but I'm going to laugh have been diverted I'll laugh. <laughs> I didn't have to deal with it so I'll laugh <laughs> so by the time we arrived at the hotel we were a little bit hot and bothered <laughs> and you hadn't even started running yet <laughs> on arrival at the hotel Alan picked up a business card for a local taxi firm called Carrot Cars so here we are in East London. We're at the Docklands Travel Lodge, about half a mile away from the O2, which is where we're heading for Space Rocks in a little while. And, uh, and there's Mr. Taylor Shearer. Hello! And uh, it's not bad. Travel Lodge, a lot of people slag off Travel Lodge, but they're, they're not bad. Let's see what the, the view is not exactly spectacular. Not exactly what I would class as East London. <laughs> um, Hiya, um, I'd like a taxi please from the travel lodge at uh, Docklands at East India down to the O2. And uh, as you hear, we're off to the O2 
momentarily and uh, I'll speak to you later. Uh, after a few minutes, a big black Mercedes with tinted windows pulled outside and the driver got out. Now, he was wearing a black suit and shades, almost like an agent from Men in Black. Apart from he was wearing a bright orange tie. And I thought, well, this, this can't be for us, can it? So sure enough, if the orange tie wasn't a giveaway, the window sticker in the back of the car had a carrot with wheels on it. <laughs> The journey wasn't too bad getting to the O2, considering there were detours everywhere. Now, I thought that the driver would just pull up at the O2 car park, but no, he drove right outside the O2 entrance, almost like a red carpet event. And we'd made it on time-ish to the venue. So I showed the people at the door the paperwork, and we were ushered to the VIP entrance. And given an access all areas wristband and met up with our contact, there was a guy called Julian Stockton, who was absolutely amazing at sorting everything out for us, I may add. Um, he showed us around the green room areas, the media suite, and coordinated when and where we needed to be to interview people. Unfortunately, we weren't allowed to record what was going on on the stage, and Tim Peake and Brian May were out of bounds for interviews. Although we did chat with Tim and Brian off the record, Space Rocks did have their own media team and they had access to everything. And Alexander Milas, one of the co-founders who I interviewed for our Yuri's Night podcast, has granted us access to the interview recordings that they had conducted for the official Space Rocks podcast. So let's get on with these interviews. Let's start with the compare of the event. And this guy is called Dallas Campbell. The one message that I want to take away from Space Rocks is that science is part of human culture, and that includes everything. Any space scientist, as soon as you get them on the subject of science fiction, they will start to talk, because most scientists at some point will have been inspired by the films they've seen, or the books they've read, or the music they've listened to, or whatever, or whatever it is. So, you know, when we think about space science particularly, we, ha we have a huge debt to the work of science fiction's authors, particularly, you know, you know 2001, that film particularly, with people of this generation, that was the film that's, that very often sparked their interest. I, I missed the sort of first Apollo 11 landing, but I was around in the early 70s, so for me, landing on the moon was something that people did. That was, that was the kind of normal state of things. So I grew up with that, that still, that sort of post-Apollo feeling of optimism about exploring the universe. This is what we were going to do. And certainly in my lifetime, you know, I, I, I assumed we'd be on Mars by now. But then also I grew up watching programs like Cosmos I watched, uh, the, you know, The Ascent of Man, Tomorrow's World, all those uh, programs that were on television in the, in the sort of 70s and 80s were my, that was my world. I was absolutely obsessed by all that. My favourite space, well, yes, there is. It's called Frau im Mond. Uh, it's by Fritz Lang, and it was made in the 1930s. And that film was such an important film in the history of rocket science, particularly because it was a German film, and the scientific advisors on it, uh, Hermann Obert, the, the famous German rocket scientist, and Werner von Braun, of course, who went on to make the V2. But the scientific advisors were the, the people who went on to invent the rockets. And it's an, it's an amazing film. It's an amazing film scientifically, for those reasons, but it's an amazing film politically and culturally. It's the one film that, if you want to understand the history of human spaceflight, go all the way back and watch... Frau Mond, Woman in the Moon. So, yeah, that was Dallas Campbell. Um, now, he started his career on The Gadget Show for Channel 5, and he followed that with the BBC's 
science magazine show called Bango's the Theory uh, and then he went on to Stargazing Live as well as many other BBC documentaries like Horizon and stuff like that so Dallas Campbell is really well known over here so he was kind of a good choice to have as the compare for the event so we're going to the the next interview which uh, was Dr Maggie Liu Hi, I'm Maggie Liu and I'm a research fellow at the European Space Agency in Madrid. So I'm one of the few people that actually work full-time science at ESA. There's about maybe 10 of us at ESAC and 10 of us at ESTEC. Um, and I study galaxy clusters, which are the cosmic giants of our universe. They're the biggest structures we know of. And they contain a huge amount of dark matter, 90% dark matter. And because of that, I'm studying them to figure out like the nature of dark matter and dark energy because that's something that completely blows me away because the fact that we are full of dark matter is in us it's everywhere yeah it's coming through us right now like passing right through us it doesn't emit any light it doesn't interact so we don't know so the only way that we are able to contact dark matter is via gravity um, so far that we have discovered gravity is the only way that it interacts right so we can use gravitational lensing the bending of light from distant galaxies to figure out where dark matter is and how much there is um, obviously there are experiments on earth um, particle detectors uh, CERN has been looking for dark matter like crashing particles together at high energies to see if we can see any dark matter particles come out but so far everything has failed so it, it really is gravitational lensing is the only way that we know of at the moment to figure out where dark matter is. So that pretty much puts you in good stead for a, a lot more research then, really. Yeah, definitely. Um, in, unless someone proves that the gravity theories that we're using is wrong, and then maybe we don't need dark matter, but so far there's not been a good theory that has been come up, and Einstein's gravity holds pretty well. I think it will do for a long time yet. <laughs> Can I just quickly take you back just briefly what was your inspiration to, to take you the to take you to the, the research of dark matter what can you remember that very moment when you thought this is, is me this is what's gonna inspire me can you can you remember that I think um, when I grew up, it's always been like a steady stream of me growing and learning. So when I was a kid, I remember looking up in the stars and thinking, oh, that the universe is so big, I want to explore it all. And then doing science at A-level, my teachers were really cool, like doing fun experiments, and I was like, oh, I want to be like them and get, get a PhD and stuff. Um, when I went to university, I did a course on cosmology, and that was like mind-blowing for me knowing like um, figuring out how the universe works it's past it's future is there going to be another big bang like is everything going to keep expanding forever or is it going to collapse back down on itself like um, just the more I learned the more I realized like we don't know anything and we're so insignificant we're tiny speck and the universe is so large and I, I just wanted to understand things that we don't understand mm. 
I mean, dark matter makes up most of the matter in the universe, right? So if we don't know what that is, it's really intriguing to me. Like, I want to know. I want to figure it out. Um, what would you say to someone, a young person, wanting to get into science, into the STEM subjects? What advice would you give to them? Um, I would give them the advice that just to work hard, and if you you like it, you should just pursue it, I think, in general. Um, science has always been something that I've enjoyed, so it's not been difficult for me. Awesome. Maggie, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you. Um, Maggie is amazing. I mean, she's so passionate about what she talks about. She is a fantastic role model for girls wanting to get into science. This is the reason why I decided to make her an honorary crew member. Now, when I handed her the patch, she said she was going to attach it to her space onesie. And I thought she was joking until she sent me a photo. (laughs) And sure enough, there she is with her space onesie with the TGP nominal patch proudly sewn onto it. I have seen said photo. Mm -hmm. That's true. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I think you did really well at the beginning there as well, because when you said, like, explain to us what you do, Maggie, you didn't (laughs) say the loo. And I thought, ah, there's a little rhyme there. Explain what it is you do, Maggie Lou. It's almost like a song. (laughs) <laughs> but he didn't do it. I was like, oh, he's very professional. Either that or, would have, or it would have turned into a Dr. Seuss rhyme. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The cosmos explained by Dr. Seuss. Oh, my word. <laughs> <laughs> now, the next person we spoke to is Dr. Beth Healy. Hi, Beth. How are you doing? Hello. I'm good, thank you. How are you? <laughs> awesome. Tell Beth, what, what are you best known for? Um, well, certainly in the, the space community, um, I spent a year overwintering at Concordia Station, which is one of our spaceflight analogue platforms. Um, um, so, so we were doing lots of research, looking into the physiological and psychological effects of being in a small, isolated um, environment, um, which can help inform us about some of the challenges we might have on long-duration spaceflight missions in the future. Now, you were there for a year. Now, how did that pan out? Yeah, it certainly was. Yeah, so I was in 14 months in Antarctica, nine of which was during sort of what we call the isolation phase. So that's the um, overwinter period. Um, it's not complete isolation. No internet, no... No, so, no, we, so yeah, we have um, internet. In fact, we actually have WhatsApp, which I was surprised about when I went down. Um, so, no, no um, in terms of isolation, it's really sort of um, in terms of evacuating people, even in case of emergency. So that, that's the big um, big thing with the isolation that we experience in Antarctica, because unlike sort of an artificial isolation that you might get on um, other analogue platforms where you're sort of isolate, artificially confined to um, sort of a mock-up spaceship, um, in Antarctica um, you take a different approach and um, it's all about sort of actually sort of being, um, being isolated in that environment, and that's because we have the cold temperatures there and the, the low light levels, which means that planes can't fly to come and get you if we, if we need you to um, evacuation and, and so that's what we're really studying and looking at so we have two doctors down there and we're looking at some medical models that we might need for these longer missions as well as the challenges the crew might be did you actually notice any behavioral differences yeah i mean of course of course you do um yeah i mean that's one of the <laughs> the challenges but also kind of one of the fun things about being in those environments i suppose is sort of seeing how the the crew interact and and how that changes over time and sort of the sort of quirky weird and wonderful things that that happen down there so sort of 
had a few a few things like sort of hiding things in the roof or like um, just people like yeah I think lots of people think oh everyone's going to be like fighting or uh, sort of big arguments but it really isn't it's much more sort of like subtle things that like someone just hiding all my gear around the station and like you know just things that you get under your skin after a while. <laughs> now I've heard that the research stations at Antarctica get involved with the Yuri's Night event oh yeah so we didn't but I really wish we had <laughs> but I've heard that too I think next I think we should uh, recommend it for the Concordia crew we've always been joking on the show that if you, if you want to go to a Yuri's Night event where you guarantee the cold drink <laughs> that would be the one absolutely we often put sort of ice cores in our sort of gin and tonics you know and you can uh, date them back to many many years um, sort of what kind of preparation did you do personally before you went down there so we actually had um, we went to the astronaut centre and we had what's called human behaviour performance training which we all had as a crew and it's all about sort of how to live and work effectively together um, in such small sort of isolated confined environments so that, that was the main training that we had and um, and then also just from a, a personal sort of aspect as well I guess having a big sort of friend support network back at home I think was really useful for me so like when things got tough like I remember one of my um, best friends put me so you can Skype from um, the station that we're at and she put me on her dashboard and drove around Paris and took me to a wedding and like different things like that and it really does I think it helps to know that you've got sort of friends and family back home that, that are going to be there when you, when you get there I mean that's a really important it's a really important thing for a group of people knowing that they've got their support yeah yeah, yeah oh, definitely definitely and I think when things get tough you know it's nice to have that sort of external voice that just brings things back into normality I mean I remember at one point that we spent like a whole afternoon worrying about the fact that we might run out of paper napkins have through through the winter and like, on hindsight you're just like how could that be an issue but like when you call your friends back at home you're like they're like it's really not an issue and you're like oh yeah it's really not an issue you're right but it just puts things back into a sort of normality uh, context as well which I think is, uh, is healthy in that, in that sort of environment Awesome. Beth, one thing. Um, I've, I've asked Maggie this question as well. What would you advise a young person to do if they wanted to get into STEM and uh, into science? I think the big thing is just to go for it. I think um, lots of people are sort of put off, um, especially when you're sort of a young girl, I would say, from from those um, career paths just because of the, the image which historically they've had. Um, but I think, for example, like when I first went up into Greenland I remember um, the people that I was going to work for being really worried that I was really small and that I might not be able to cope with the environment but actually you know no one's built for minus 80 and so I think you know whether I'm a big guy with a beard or, or the same build that I have you know you can you can adapt in different ways and you just need to work out how, how it's going to work for you um, and, and so I think just don't be put off because you don't necessarily fit the stereotype just do what do what you want to do and what you enjoy doing and you'll end up having an interesting um, job or at least that you find interesting. Awesome. Well, Beth, thanks for talking with us. It's been really interesting because um, I didn't know a lot about the the environment that you were actually in, and and especially when you were talking about how people reacted when they were there after a while, you know, hiding things and stuff. I didn't realise that that would be kind of one of the the behavioural differences from that, so that's that's amazing. Oh, it's been my pleasure, and um, I hope you enjoy the rest of the uh, the concert later this evening. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Minus 80 degrees. Mm. More power to her. No, no. Mm -mm. That's just like instant death. (laughs) 
to me. I'm a slim guy. I've got no blubber. That's it. <laughs> it's game over. <laughs> now, Beth is a ball of energy. And one thing I did notice about her during the event is that she does like to partake in photo bombing. <laughs> Every opportunity she has. The thing that I can hear about all the people so far you've interviewed is there's passion there. Yeah. And everything they do, they do it because they genuinely love it. Mm-hmm. And that's what's great about it. They follow what they enjoy, what they love, their passion. And you can just you can just hear it in their voices. It's, it's brilliant. I love what she had to say about, you know, just because you other people say you don't fit into what you want to do. If you enjoy doing it, then just do it. Oh, definitely. Definitely. I'm, like, I can relate a lot as a firefighter. When she was talking about, I mean, we spend like 11 hours, 12 hours. Well, we spend a lot of half of our time we spend with, you know, our crew, as we call them, or like family. There's, there's times where they wind you up to the point where you're just like, I'm going to kill him. I'm going to kill him because you spend that amount of time with them. But then there's other times where you do things like that, like exactly what she was saying. You hide clothes, you hide stuff, you do things, you do this, you do that. When you get to know people that well, but you're in a confined space with them all the time, it's just that's how you get through the day. It's, you know, we, we call it banter. We call it, you know, humor, fun. You just, you do things, you know. Yeah, I think you would lose it a bit if you didn't have that kind of banter definitely definitely it's, it's the people you work with and that that you know it's like it's like if you're going to mars or something you need people that are going to get on pretty you much people that are going to you know are going to you know sit there and go you know what we've got hundreds and hundreds of hours together probably thousands <laughs> what are we going to do <laughs> be creative think about stuff think outside the box you know make up stories so you get through everything mm-hmm. that's what we say to our kids Right, the next person we spoke to is a guy called Dr. Matt Taylor. We're talking to Matt Taylor, who, for the podcast, you're an absolute hero of ours. And uh, (laughs) No, because we were obviously following the Rosetta mission very closely. And uh, it must have been quite an emotional uh, mission for you. Yeah, it's difficult. You know, there was a question asked when we were on stage about, you know, did you ever think anything was going to go wrong and how did... You kind of have to. You build this this personality, or you, you ingrain yourself that nothing can go wrong. So it's it is difficult when things go awry every now and again. But in the end, it's I knew it was going to work, even though it didn't work according to plan. Um, but I have to say as well, it was a tough couple of years. It's been massively intense. So in some ways. <laughs> I kind of was looking forward to the end in a way. We were joking about, oh, we could have gone on with Rosetta because it had, well, something like 114 kilograms of fuel left. Some of the instruments were going, and we did the, the best thing, which was to, to put it on the ground. But I was joking with a couple of colleagues in Nisa to go, if we kept it going, I'm not sure if the, the, the murder rate would have stayed at zero because it was getting very intense. The last year, we were doing things, we got used to doing things, but still, it's so intense. You know, it, it was 24 hours, uh, seven days a week. It's unbelievable. So, yeah, I think that's a sign of a good psycholo- psychology that you can look back and go, oh, these are the positive aspects. If we sit down with team members, uh, I was talking to Chechi Tubiana, she was on the O-Series camera team. You actually, we were joking and laughing that we were sitting there talking about how we missed the intense of the discussions, the intensity of some of the interactions. And then going, do we really? <laughs> because it was that intense. Um, but, yeah, it's it was a pinnacle of my career, I think. Uh, that's it now. <laughs> was it intentional to give them uh, a personality? Uh, the thing, we had, within ESA, had swi- 
switched uh, switched onto that we have to do things differently, that we have to do something better. Um, things evolved during Rosetta. I mean, originally the cartoon, I think there's only going to ever be one cartoon, but then it was like, my God, this is a, such a fantastic vehicle for providing context of what's going on. The, the cartoons are accurate as well, scientifically, and I use them, I use them a little bit here, but full talk, I use all of them, because like, they show you what we were doing at a particular time. So it evolved in time, put it that way. I think um, Mark's probably the best person to talk about that because he knows really what was going on behind the scenes. But certainly, Rosetta was always going to be a popular mission just because it had these aspects of exploration of the unknown. So it had the ingredients that were then utilised. So you can, you know, you can have hots and water and whatever and you can make crap beer. But using that, and we made an award-winning beer uh, in terms of outreach. Sorry, I don't know why that much. I love the idea of... Referring to it like a beer is just that's well, me, right it, it was a, well, it's a good IPA, yeah. <laughs> a hoppy one. Because the one thing I do like about ESA missions over some of the others is that they use proper names rather than acronyms. Well, which you know, a, we've got some acronyms, but yeah, it's you know, it's, it's nice. It's a, it's a nice. Well, we'll see if they they name them differently in the future. I, I don't know, but uh, we'll try and make them that they've got an attachment. And I'm really that, I'm saying to some people earlier on about Becky Columbo, the fact that now we've got cartoon characters and, and because there's a connection with uh, the Japanese space agency, one of the spacecraft is theirs, that's going to blow my mind. I know my daughter's super excited because she's very much into anime and manga. That, and they were the originators, really, with some of the, the graphics they were using for Hayabusa, etc. So, yeah, it, it, there's, there's plenty more to come in that, in that vein. Awesome. Can I just ask you about you? And who? And what? <laughs> Um, I grew up with the university scientist. Yes, yeah, yeah. Oh, was it you Dr. Denzel Dexter from you the don't past fit show? Yeah. Well, you don't fit the stereotypes. Yeah, but the thing is, for me, I find that interesting that all the people I know who are scientists don't fit that mould. There's a few people that are kind of the Sheldon Coopers that I know, but a great majority of scientists are just normal people. So, you know, you say there's a computer programmer. What does a computer programmer look like? There's a bricklayer. What is he? she's supposed to look like yeah but I mean okay I know that there's not that many people that have tattoos certainly but there are people that are into metal and can play much better than I can uh, I can't play that very very well at all and there's a guy actually uh, Jean-Baptiste Vincent um, who's a, a, a French scientist working in the, or was working in the Osiris camera team you can see him during the fellow descent with his long hair and everything he, he's a crazy good musician crazy into metal so there's a few of us around it's just that they stuck me up and yeah I look a bit different so I think it's good that, that all these elements of a, of a person's personality are able to be you're, you're able to, to bring them into your, to your work yeah. you know because a lot of people live with so many restrictions in their work you can't wear that you must look yeah. like this you must look like well this. I mean so to some extent you, you know I was it was kind of expected of me a little bit when, when I was before I got to ESA I was always wearing shorts and flip flops and when I worked in uh, New Mexico you had to because it's so warm um, but then when I turned back to ESA in 2005 I remember my manager somebody complained to her going what have you done to Matt because I turned up and I wore a jacket and then trousers and I was like just and I would wear that I can wear both it's just that now I tend to be associated with this and my wife was getting a little bit frustrated maybe with me during Rosetta that I became a caricature of myself so I tend to wear the shorts and sometimes I just want to wear 
something else. And I remember we were doing a meeting at STEC in 2015, I think, so where I put the, the European Space Agency's Titan Center. We had a big at the meeting, and I wore a suit. And um, uh, Euronews and Jem- Jeremy Wilkes was interviewing me, and we go, we've got to get this on camera, because nobody's <laughs> going to recognize you. And there was a huge, I was like, oh, what is he wearing? Right, I've got six suits in my office, because I used to wear them a lot. I just, now I kind of get a bit, I'll never be able to wear it today, because it's too hot, you know, it's like <laughs> steam forming around your ears kind of thing. But, yeah, I'm, I'm lucky that I'm in an environment where you're allowed to have some individuality. Mm-hmm. And it's good that you've been able to um, to use that to promote... Well, this is it. I think it's an important message that I wanted to... And somebody, a, a colleague of mine, Karen LaFlatty, she's working in communications, had mentioned to me about saying things about, you know, like I did today. I, I had to retake a whole year of A-levels because I didn't get the good enough grades to get into university. Because kids nowadays, and I know because I've got teenage uh, kids, there's so much pressure to be a straight-A student, to, to know what you want to do when you're 12. I didn't know what... I was. I wanted to be a soldier when I was 12. When I was 16, I was going to join the Paris because I thought I was going to fail at school and I needed something to drive me forward. So things evolve. Just need to, you need to know that there's always a choice. There's something out there for you. Don't worry too much. That's the, that's the key message. Thank you. Thanks, Matt. Um, before we go, uh, we'd like to make you an, uh, an honorary crew member of TGP Nominal, if that's okay. We would like to present you with one of our mission patches. Oh, wow, awesome. And I've got a perfect cut now to put it on. Yeah. Awesome. Thanks a lot, Matt. Much appreciated. I'll stick it out here. I'll put it in here. Awesome. Thanks a lot. Have a good one today, guys. Yeah. So, yeah, Matt Taylor, absolute legend. That's all I can say about Matt. From the days when seeing him on Rosetta with his tattoos and his loud shirts and being just this personality, it was really easy to talk to off of Mike as well. I mean, I had a couple of beers with him. He's a really fun-loving guy. He lives life to the max. He even brought along a Stormtrooper helmet for everyone to sign, and it's now being auctioned off for charity. Nice. He's uh, got my vote. As we all know, he's, he's part of the uh, the Dutch garrison of the 501st Legion, so, uh, you know, scientists during the weekdays and uh, parades around as a stormtrooper at weekends raising money for charity so top guy and I had to get in there about the acronyms I I had to (laughs) (laughs) after Mr Musk (sighs) yes the way he said yeah well we're going to continue doing it this way as long as we can and I thought yeah this is good stuff (laughs) (laughs) this is Arnold J. Rimmer from Red Dwarf you're listening to TGP Nominal listen to it the next guy I spoke to is a professor actually Professor Mark McCorcoran he had to be spoken to because he's one of the co-founders of the Space Rocks event. So I'd already spoken to Alexander Milas, so I had to speak to Mark. And we're talking with Mark McCorcoran. Now, I got your name right there, didn't you I? You did, yes. Uh, unlike Mark Radcliffe. <laughs> yeah, well, he knew how to pronounce it, but he, he completely screwed it up the first time. But yeah, but he, and I looked across the table at him and he went, oh. <laughs> So, Mark, tell us about uh, your role at ESA. I'm the Senior Advisor for Science and Exploration 
um, which is a, a lovely place to be because it means I span the science directorate where we fly observatories. People maybe remember Herschel and Planck, and we've got the Hubble Space Telescope. We're building the James Webb Space Telescope with NASA uh, and the Canadians. So there's all of that stuff, which is my, if you like, my natural domain historically. But recently, I'm also now split across the human and robotic exploration directorates. That means I get to work with the astronauts. What science are they doing on the International Space Station? Um, what, spe- what, what are they doing on the ground? Uh, analog testing for future missions to Mars and the robotic missions like ExoMars, for example. So my, my job within the agency is to take all of the science across those two directorates, those two big areas, and bring it to our committees, to the people that pay for us to do these things, but also to the general public as well. So it's uh, uh, Haywood Floyd, who some people might remember as the uh, he's a senior science advisor in the film 2001. He goes up to the moon. Um, he has this lovely line in the book. It's not in the film. He says, you know, I used to be an astronomer, but now I'm, now I'm a senior advisor. I know uh, absolutely nothing about absolutely everything. And that's, that's pretty much my job. So how did you get involved with Space Rocks? How did it come about? Well, Space Rocks uh, is, is effectively my baby. It's something which I, I dreamed up a few years ago. It's still on my big whiteboard at work. I have loads of projects, but Space Rocks is up there in the top left corner, one of the early things. And it came about because during Ros- the Rosetta mission, we hooked up with so many people that were interested in doing cultural things with us on the basis of watching the mission, the adventure, Rosetta and Philae talking to each other. Um, we got Vangelis involved. Um, everybody knows Vangelis from Blade Runner and Chariots of Fire as a composer. But we had people writing symphonies, I had people writing whole prog rock uh, albums, um, people doing guitar pieces, so much creative um, stuff coming from music and other areas as well. But on the music, I then met up through Matt Taylor, who everybody knows here is a Rosetta project scientist. He met Alex Milas. Alex and I got talking. Alex is a music guy but a big fan of space, and I'm the other way around. I work in space, but I'm a big fan of music. How can we take it to the public? How can we bring it to people such that they can enjoy what we enjoy but also are inspired by uh, all of this creativity in the room together so that was about nearly three years ago but here we are today we finally pushed it over the over the line and, and, and pushed the boat out today awesome now mark um we like to on the show uh present people that's in the space industry uh, and in the sci-fi industry to one of our mission patches and uh, make them an honorary crew member of TGP Nominal. Thank you very uh, much. And, and we'd love to present one to you if that's Thank okay. you. That would be fantastic. Thanks very much. Very cool. Thank you. Yeah, it's a pleasure talking to you. Well, thanks very much. I know you've been doing a lot of stuff with other people, with Alex and, uh, and so on. And uh, I appreciate every everything everybody's doing to help us get this out. I mean, this is a pilot event for us. It's the first off. Um, hopefully people have enjoyed the day enough that we'll be able to do more of it. But, uh, awesome. Yeah. And just quickly, before yeah. we finish, should we really go to Titan? I think about the film. Oh, 2001. Yeah, I shouldn't go to Titan. No, that's that's Europa. Oh, it's Europa. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, that's where you lost that's me. All these, all these planets are yours. <laughs> well, but the funny story is, if you read the book, mm-hmm. um, they go in the book to Saturn. Right. Um, but when Kubrick, uh, so Arthur C. Clarke had written about going to Saturn, 
Um, but when Kubrick uh, tried to make Saturn, he couldn't make convincing rings uh, for the film. So he said, we're going to do this at Jupiter then, because at least I can make that a bit more convincing, which it is if you go and look at it. It's all a bit gauzy and a bit hazy, but he, he, Kubrick couldn't make good enough rings for Saturn. So it's Europa. All these planets are yours apart from Europa. Europa. Yeah, thank you. And what a job he's got. It's just amazing. I actually got to speak with Mark a little bit longer than, uh, than normal because I found out a bit about his musical past because he was talking about music and how, you know, it's a big part of his life. And he used to visit my hometown of Aylesbury quite regularly because he used to go to the Friars Aylesbury Music Club, which is a pretty famous venue, and was the place that launched David Bowie's career. Uh, along with uh, a few other people but he used to go to their gigs quite regularly there so uh, we were talking about his time when he used to come to my hometown nice <laughs> explains the statue yeah now the next person I spoke to or we spoke to was Charlotte Haverly well you might remember Charlotte Haverly from the Yuri's Night podcast because she came on and uh, we spoke to her when she was on tour in Zurich I believe she was at the time so we met up at the at the gig and uh, the, this is what she had to say we're with Charlotte Haverly how you doing? Good thank you I've just finished my panel discussion with Tim Peake and Gavin Rothery and Alistair Reynolds and it's quite intimidating I've got to say <laughs> but it went well It is I mean the, the first thing we saw today is the, kind of Tim Peake opened the door for us earlier and yeah. it was like oh wow Tim yeah. Peake <laughs> Yeah he's just sort of hanging out it's quite a small backstage little area and just sort of crisps and fruit and drinks and everyone's just hanging out and everyone's very chilled and friendly and very chatty I just sort of had a nice chat with Tim Peake before we did the, the talk I just saw Brian May and it's very friendly it's nice so how have you found the the mix and the con- the you know the conglomeration if you like of art and science mm. together in today I mean it's such been a huge part of my life uh, like, as being a musician a lot of the my musical heroes uh, like David Bowie and uh, they've always had sci-fi elements and I sort of grew up loving the science fiction film um so the panel that I did just now was interesting because Gavin Rothery, um, who I've worked with on a short film, he's directing a film, um, which is a, a science fiction film, and he worked on Moon, and he's also a sort of sci-fi concept artist. And we're friends, we've worked together, and we've had like nights down the pub just talking about this stuff, and then to sort of get up on stage and share it in this event. I mean, it, and that's what it feels like, it's like a, a chat amongst mates and I think we've all got the same reference points even though there's an age difference like I was I sort of missed Star Wars and certain but I've sort of retrospectively sort of become obsessed with 80s science fiction mm-hmm. film which I didn't experience at the time but then geeking out with Gav or Mark Corcoran from ESA, you know, they sort of grew up with that. But I think we're all into it and we have we sort of have that shared love. And then, you know, it's cool to have been introduced to Mark McCorcoran from uh, ESA because he also is a massive music fan as well as being just so amazing at communicating really difficult science ideas. You know, he lives and breathes that stuff, he works at it every day, but then he's up on stage and talking about the overlaps between um, the science fiction and reality. Uh, and I think film and music is just a really great place for to explore those ideas and to make them accessible and human, because I think sometimes they can be quite cold and 
hard to access yeah. if they're sort of just left to people who aren't really used to communicating then sort of focus on the work stuck in a room someone said that to me about the people who are making the technology today are people who can't make eye contact or communicate and I can sort of understand that you know as we look down at our phones we get absorbed in our technology and the whole point of today is to be able to sort of be able to communicate and share the love for these ideas with kids as well you know some really great questions from the kids earlier on makes it sort of exciting and relevant Mm. it is really nice to see the younger generation there because as as what we do as part of the podcast is to try and inspire yeah the next generation uh, by talking to different people from different fields yeah and hopefully one day we'll be watching TV or something and it'll be this person on the screen you think you know, yeah. they used to listen to the podcast or, yeah, or whatever yeah. that would be amazing to yeah exactly because be. when I grew up there wasn't uh, anything like this in the news and now it's all like I mean Elon Musk has mm-hmm. sort of become this incredible figure mm-hmm. of just doing sort of outrageous PR stunts slash amazing advances like the advances in space to sort of exploration possibilities it's just been incredible I didn't have that when I was growing up that's it I mean it's I'm, I'm noticing the news recently there's been a thing about a company called Reaction Engines mm. who are doing this remarkable air-cooled engine that can launch like a plane and then go into space right British yeah and uh, it's just a remarkable to see these British yeah. inventions actually yeah yeah making it out there now yeah and, cool. uh, you never would have thought that a few years ago yeah and it's because of companies like SpaceX and yeah. uh, other other ventures that has inspired others to, yeah. to follow suit. Yeah, yeah. That's great. So, awesome. Can I ask you about your music? Yeah. Um, Ash, uh, all that kind of stuff. Now, have you been able to express your yourself more now that you're so? Well, yes. I mean, the reason I did the, the, my first solo record, I mean, I was still with Ash at the time, was because I'd written a lot of songs that I just knew wouldn't be on the Ash record, um, and I wanted an outlet. But at the same time, I was never really that interested in being a solo artist. And, and I think the fact that I'm, I sort of spend most of my time as a session musician with other artists, like every single solo record I've done, this is my fourth, I've been touring with someone else, mm-hmm. which, I don't know, goes to show... Like I don't, I'm not sort of driven to be the the main focus point. Um, and in fact, with this record, I wasn't really intending to do many gigs for it. Um, but this opportunity came up, and I think I guess if I'm going to do gigs with my solo project, they have to be interesting enough for me to want to put the time into it yeah. to make it happen. Because I'm, I spend so much of my time touring anyway, um, and so this is sort of a perfect thing for me so did you feel that you were more able to express your own interest in the science fiction yeah yeah I mean I've always I mean I guess this record is is, is a much more I've really embraced it mm. than previous records it's, there's been elements of it but I've really gone for it on this record um, and also that so much time had passed between my previous solo record that I just thought it'd be nice to come back I felt like I, I was able to come back with something quite different and the sound was different on electronic rather than guitars um, but then at the same time it's probably a very personal record much more so than the others So how have you changed as a musician then from mm. doing punk and raw guitar yeah. stuff to now 
keyboards, electronics, yeah. sci-fi. Well, I mean, I've changed a lot. I mean, I suppose it's been 20... I mean, I joined Ash when I was 18. Hmm. I'm 38, so it's been 20, 20 years. And, yeah, it was very much punk pop, um, guitar, amp, a few pedals, that's yeah, it. Yeah. And now my setup is, like... Laptop, Ableton, back and track, two keyboards, MIDI keyboards, um, guitar. <laughs> um, so it's it's become a lot more elaborate. But I think music technology has changed so much over the last few years that it's allowed it's allowed me to to sort of play as a three piece. Actually, what, what big sounding songs on the record? I've always struggled to translate um, songs that have been like heavily produced and layered into the live experience. Yeah, um, and I think for this record I sort of found a way to make it work um, and I guess collaboration I mean I've spent 10 years playing with other people so every artist that I work with I take elements of that setup. each artist has different needs and different guitars or keyboards and you just accumulate all this experience and gear and I've just ploughed it all into my own music I, I, I work with a lot of musicians like yourself mm. who are session and are touring and everything else and I was with a, a, a group of these guys earlier, uh, recently Yeah. Um, and what you've said is almost exactly the kind of experience they've had, they're right. always touring with somebody but they've got their own stuff Yeah, yeah, yeah. and having to be so adaptable, mm. you know, to be, to be able to go to Abbey Road and play kind of rock and rock and blues type stuff yeah. and then go to another studio within a couple of days of each other and you're knocking out some funk and jazz yeah yeah you know, with a completely different instrument completely different set of people mm. but there you are yeah and you're constant for yourself so yeah I think it, in a good way it, make, it means that you're always open to change and you're always experimenting and having fun and playing which is like a key element of being creative um, yeah exactly so you can sort of I mean, it's easier... I, I, I hit a period of, of writer's block and actually just go out on the road with another artist. Or even pretending that you're writing a completely different style um, helps me. And then, you know, I did the EP of cover versions and I found that really liberating. Um, See, so there's lots of ways... Yeah, coll- collaboration has become my most... Um, the important thing that I've discovered, really. Because I think the solo albums I've done post-Ash... But it was just all me mm. in a quite controlling way. It's like I felt like I had to do everything, and now I'm like, no, it's okay to like share, share the load. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Thanks, Charlotte. Before we leave you, I'd, I'd like to make you an honorary crew member of TGP Normal if that's okay. That's okay. Cool. Yeah. And we have a mission mission patch. Ah, one of these. Awesome. Uh, if. If, if you have photograph of him, yeah. Have you, have you told them about it. your spacesuit? I am wearing the ESA, an ESA spacesuit. What? Flight suit. Flight suit. Te- flight technical. Flight. But technical you've now got your now first actual I've patch. I've got actual patch. There we go. Awesome, thank no. you. Wicked. Thanks, man. Well, I hope so you enjoy the show. Her set on the night was absolutely awesome. We mentioned her jaw-dropping videos on our Yuri's Night special, but these videos were being played behind her as she played on stage in her flight suit with uh, David Bowie-esque kind of makeup as she played. And whilst I was wandering around getting the atmosphere during the concert, she actually played the song 
Hook You Up, which was the, the song that she allowed us to have as an exclusive to play on the show. And when the beat at the beginning of that dropped, I got a little bit emotional because it was like, wow, we were part of this. And uh, yeah, it was it was quite a, an emotional moment. Now, Charlotte is actually touring at the moment. She's touring with an artist called Katie Tunstall. Yep. She, she said there that, you know, she tours a lot with different people and, that, and that's who she's touring with at the moment. Nice. The, the next guy we spoke to was a guy called Gavin Rovery. I'm talking to Gavin Rovery. How are you doing? Very well, thank you. So, what will people know you for? Um, are we talking about crimes or real-world things? <laughs> <laughs> I'm only joking, of course. I'm a very legal chap. Um, people will probably know me most for co-creating Moon with Duncan Jones and designing the designing the film and just generally my input in that, in that film. Fans of computer games might know me for um, designing spaceships for Star Citizen. And eagle-eyed observers might have recognised me as um, Simon Pegg's um, stand-in in Shaun the Dead. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Now, you, you've also been in, involved in music videos and stuff as well, haven't you? Yeah. I think invariably when you're working in production, um, you're always, you're always going to get into that kind of space. We're outside, it can't be helped. Yeah. Hey, people got to get around, right? Everyone's got to get on holiday. That's right. World keeps turning. Um, yeah, I think invariably when you're working in production, like if you have aspirations to work in any form of production, uh, music videos is something that tends to kind of touch everybody's career to some degree or another, usually because there are always artists out there that need videos, and even though generally you have no budget, it's a way to get some work done and hopefully get something that will get some traction. It's a way to, you know, get a bunch of people together to work, even though no one's really getting paid, and you can get get a piece of work done that, that may get you some attention and helps you build your reel. So it's quite appealing in that regard. So what would you say for the style that you how you direct would have been your inspirations? As as far as other directors go, do you yeah, mean? Or, yeah, yeah. Um, I tend not to, not to look at other people, to be honest. I'm, I'm really trying to do my own thing. I mean, I don't mean to sound, like, lofty when I say that. What I mean by that is whenever I look at how other people work, I have to really remind myself that whatever that person is and whatever they're doing, they're guided by their own thoughts and their own kind of pull on their own barometers on what they're trying to achieve. And I don't know what any of that stuff is. So I can watch, you know, directors I, like, admire, like, hugely, like people like David Lynch... You know, I've watched so many clips and extras of David Lynch behind the scenes trying to trying to gain some kind of insight into, you know, maybe he's got something that he does, and if I could do that too, then, you know, I could be like David Lynch. And I've just kind of come to the point that I've sort of reached a point where it's not... That's not really how it works. Do you know what I mean? And I'll still watch clips of David Lynch directing, and I find it fascinating, and sometimes you might pick up the odd tip, but at the end of the day, I'm not him, and my brain doesn't work like his, and I'm not necessarily trying to achieve the same things he is. So for me to try and emulate what he's doing, Doing and getting that same space is kind of is kind of um, daft in a way because it's not necessarily going to be relevant to what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, totally. And but you you have been inspired by different genres, especially in the sci-fi world, because uh, you mentioned before it's the, the 80s movies. The 80s, yeah, that wonderful, wonderful decade that gave us decade. so much. Yeah, <laughs> that, that kind of, uh, your look is, is, is very... 
I just feel like there's things missing. When I look around these days, I see things that I love and I see things that are out there now that aren't there. And I kind of want to fill that hole a little bit, so I'm hoping to be able to do a bit of that. That's kind of like where I come out when I think about this stuff all night, at like five o'clock in the morning. It's like, what am I trying to do here? You know, I always ask myself, like, what would I be into if I was 16 now? You know, I'm 44. I've got, I've got my own thoughts on things. I know what I like. I've seen a lot of stuff probably too much stuff to a point where it's very easy for me to be very cynical about things because you know we've all seen a lot of films and heard a lot of music right so we can see a new film hear a new bit of music and sometimes we can dismiss it immediately because it's not doesn't reach a certain bar that we've set ourselves like you know if you've seen all of Stanley Kubrick's films and grew up with them and all of that you can only do that once like if you're 16 now you're probably not going to do that you're going to have a different different experience growing up and so I find there's a double-edged sword here part of your brain immediately goes that doesn't meet that bar I will dismiss it and the other part of your brain sort of checks it and says that this is a different experience for a different group of people maybe what I'm just because it might not be what I'm thinking doesn't mean it's wrong right and so where I've kind of come out in all of this is I'm just trying to hopefully make things that I will like in the hope that people like me will like them and that's about as much as I can ever do to to be able to check whatever I'm doing against the broader barometer of what anybody else might think. Yeah. Because no matter what you do and how good it is, there's a bunch of people out there that will just look at it and tell you it's rubbish. And it's just how the world is, right? Not, not everybody's going to like any, everything, right? And so, um, you know, you just got to sort of try and embrace that a little bit and find the people that want to come with you and, uh, you know, they're your people, right? Yeah, definitely. So, what's next for you? Well, we're just in the, at the moment, we're just in the stages of um, closing the finance on my first feature film. So I've written in, uh, written a feature film called Archive, which I'll be directing. So it's another sci-fi piece. It's very much a kind of a spiritual cousin to Moon. Yeah, hopefully if you enjoyed Moon, you'll like Archive. Yeah, we're hoping to be shooting at the end of this year. At the moment, the current plan is to be shooting in uh, September. Right. September this year. So, you know, things move around a little bit. We're whenever you bring the finance together with these things there's always uh, a lot of moving parts and as you kind of click them all together you end up having like slippage of timings so we've gone from like shooting in July to shooting in September over the past kind of sort of three months so hopefully that'll all uh, that'll all just kind of stop <laughs> soon and we can get a firm date in the calendar and book a studio because uh, you know it's just very very stressful yeah, I can imagine <laughs> Well, Gavin, it's been absolutely fantastic talking with you. Thank you. Very surreal, talking with somebody who works in Hollywood and just so easy to get on with. He can talk for hours about sci-fi. And after a couple of beers, I did talk to him for ages about the most obscure (laughs) sci-fi you can imagine. Um, For example, who remembers a TV show called Star Maidens? Nobody. Um, <laughs> it's a 1976 Anglo-German show. Wow. That starred Gareth Thomas, who was famous for being Blake from Blake 7. And it also starred TGP nominal honorary crew member Pam Rose. It's a most bizarre show. It's, it's a, basically about a world where women are the dominant sex and men are pretty much slaves pretty much the whole show the promise of the show I don't even think I've seen it repeated anywhere it's it's basically if you can get it on DVD it's difficult it's one of those kind of shows but uh, yeah uh, 
because spoken to him for hours and hours and hours and we did talk about some weird and wonderful things as well uh, which I can't talk about on the, on, on this podcast that's for sure um, <laughs> <laughs> but that leads us on to uh, the last interview which is uh, a guy called Jeff Notkin when I was a kid my favourite thing in all of London was the Geological Museum which is now part of the great Natural History Museum London and I would implore my mother to let me go to the museum instead of going to school and that was my favourite day trip was to take the train up to Victoria go to the Geological Museum and that's where I first saw meteorites and at the back of the mineral hall was a a marvellous dark kind of spooky room the hall of meteorites and that's where I saw them for the first time and I, I was completely smitten and entranced as a kid by this this very clear understanding that they were from outer space and I was already a sci-fi fan I was watching Lost in Space and Star Trek and Doctor Who so to see rocks the physical manifestation of other bodies in the universe that a little boy could touch blew my mind I, I was smitten and I, I I promised myself as a kid that one day I I I had to have it. I, want, I promised myself I would own one in, in my collection one day, not realizing that, that this uh, fairly grandiose wish would, would set me down a very unusual career path. I gave myself a goal. So this was in the late 60s. I was a little boy, and I, my interest in meteorites was sustained, and I saw collections all over the world, and I read scientific papers, but I still didn't have one, and there wasn't really a collecting community then it was in the early 90s and i went on an expedition to arizona and i i gave myself a a rather strict goal which is you're not to go home until you've found one so i found my first meteorite in arizona and rather incredibly i found it on the first day of the expedition i go well that wasn't hard everyone says you'd never find a meteorite your whole life so i was super pleased with myself and then it took me two years to find my second one so i i was i was beyond lucky but then I, I met a couple of other people who were doing the same thing, and we developed hunting and recovery techniques, which are now quite well-known because we made a television show about it. But in, in the early days, there was no real... There was no standard methodology. This was something that we had to discover. And since meteorites are rich in iron, we use metal detectors and magnets and a lot of other different types of tech. But there's science, determination, and luck in, involved in, in finding these. Rarer than the rarest terrestrial gemstones. Jeff Notkin, he was on the TV show, I don't know if you've ever seen it, called Meteorite Men. Yeah, I have, yeah. And he also owns a company called Aerolite Meteorites, which is an international meteorite company offering a wide range of products from entry-level meteorites to museum-quality specimens, so, you know, the whole range. I mean, this guy has had such a varied career. I mean, he was a, a punk musician during the 70s. He was a, a production assistant to Art Spiegelman of the, the graphic novel Mouse. I don't know if you remember that, John. Oh, no, I know that one. I have never read it, but I, I remember seeing uh, very stylized and uh, Nazi Germany. That's the one. Correct. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So he's the guy behind that. But this Art Spiegelman who, who wrote that, wow. um, he is also the guy behind the Garbage Pail Kids. Do you remember those? <laughs> yeah, the parody on the Cabbage Patch Kids. That's the ones. Nice. Now, there was a character in these Garbage Pail Kids called Deaf Jeff, and that was inspired by Jeff Notkin. That was the, the character was inspired by him. 
Nice. <laughs> Jeff is also on the board of governors for the National Space Society. And he's also a long-time member of the Explorers Club, which you might remember, John, that uh, Richard Garrett was also a member of that. Richard Garrett? Who's that? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I know, I know. Now, towards the end of the event, Alan thought it would be a good idea to get together and record a kind of a final thought thing, kind of like what Jerry Springer used to do at the end of his shows. But we did this recording and... Uh, play it in 10pm and uh, we've sought the oasis of the green room <laughs> yes we're in the, uh, the the swivel chairs that they were using for the uh, for the panels earlier yes yeah, they're very comfortable as well. <laughs> very comfortable very 2001-esque yeah yeah they were describing them earlier as kind of like the voice where you can they were, oh, yeah. they, were they could turn around and try and judge who we were by the questions we asked <laughs> now I was going to ask you a really stupid question the highlight of the day for you for me uh, there's a few I mean I I did meet Tim Peake I did speak to Tim Peake but it wasn't for an interview Um, but as the interview side of things it's got to be Matt Taylor right for me yeah because we've been following him ever since the the uh, Rosetta missions right and we love everything he stands for on the show so to actually meet him yeah. and he's just a genuine guy right. you know and, and as he said in, in his presentation he's he's quite local to here he's just right. up the road so well he's born here but he, as he said he lives in lives in the Netherlands now but right. um, yeah it's it was fantastic to meet him you know, we've been talking about him for so long, and then to actually talk to he's him. He's a crew member as well now. Yeah, he's, he's an honorary crew member. So, uh, along with Maggie Lou, she's a, an honorary crew member. And yeah. Mark McCorkran, he's, he's a crew member, and so's Alex, Alex Milas, Charlotte Haverly. Yeah. She was my interview of the day. I enjoyed it when we interviewed Charlotte. I enjoyed that one in particular. I've got a lot of time for Charlotte. Considering I didn't know a great deal about her solo work after Ash Mm. until I got involved in this project, and it's just been a journey, you know. Um, And she she took us on board when I did the interviews prior to this for the Yuri's Night episode, and, uh, you know, she said, come say hi, and she was very welcoming towards us, and um, as you say, it was a very good interview. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think everybody's been really um, they've been really cooperative they've been really open yeah you know I've not really had anything that's been off limits there was a couple of instances where we couldn't really do what we wanted to do but that's because of restrictions Uh, in particular Tim Peake is there are restrictions on what he can and can't say so it's easier for him not to not to say anything anything (laughs) at all because uh, you know he is going up to the space station again Uh, there was talk of it next year I don't know how right if that's going to happen next year or whether it's going to be a later date but he's confirmed one thing for me I'll never be an astronaut too big yeah, the, a lot of the astronauts are small. I mean, Yuri Gagarin, 
I think he's smaller than me, and I'm quite small. So, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> as you will see from the photograph that I've had taken with uh, Alexander Minus, because he makes me he makes me look like a hobbit. <laughs> to be honest with you. <laughs> so, highlight of my day. Hmm. Let me think. Dr. Brian May. Yeah, you were very lucky to get that one. Yeah, it was unplanned. It was... And I just got a moment or so with him. Uh, we got a picture. Um, I'll quickly introduce myself. We had a very brief conversation about the day. Um, but no interview, um, which is fine. You know, appreciate his... Everybody wants a piece of him. So. Um, but... As I put on Facebook, I think my life is now complete. <laughs> I can end my days. I mean, we, we even got to chat with... Uh, we've got an interview with and to chat with for quite a long amount of time with Gavin Rothery, who yes. is a uh, Hollywood director and art consultant and, and things really on, nice chap yeah he just came across really genuine it's like we've known him for years sort of thing about space 1999 just a little bit yeah mm. and we did talk to him a fair bit about that yeah, yeah. like I say really nice fella <laughs> and uh, obviously um, the guys in, involved with the, in the backgrounds uh, you had Oh, excuse me, it's getting late. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you've got. To, you're going to have to excuse us because we're both pretty much on the last drop of fuel. <laughs> We've been on the go <laughs> for a long time today. Um, yeah, yeah. Julian Stockton, who was uh, coordinating everything for us, yeah, and he couldn't have done more for us. No, it's brilliant for He's uh, he did an excellent job facilitating the day. Um, basically, what he did was put the panel members and others that we requested in front of us so we could interview them. Um, so we weren't chasing the interviews, you mm -hmm. know, which is so refreshing. Yeah. You know, chasing people. It's like, yeah, I'll be with you in a minute. Yeah, I'll be with you in a minute. Yeah, I'll get to you next time. And then they never do. Or, you know, it's very, very rare that they do. So having, having, having him there able to facilitate and do his job which was right you go stand there talk to these people you know that was that was really refreshing and a really important touch yeah and, there, and there was no with the other podcasters and other people involved with the interviewing mm. there was no pushing or shoving no. or anything like that it was we were in the media room next? we were in the media room and um, we just took it in turns there yeah. were four or five podcasters another media there and um, once again, Julian did his thing, and you know, yeah. And he's, he's had a hard time really because he, he was he was involved with in it at quite a short notice. Right. Okay. Um, I mean, Ben, the the PR guy, his his wife has just just given birth to their third child, and so um, she had other, and, and he had other priorities. Yeah. Yeah. Quite right. Um, and, and Ben sent me an email to say, look, Julian's going to be covering it for you. Here's all these details. Um, I just wrote an email back to him saying, thanks very much. And in the same email, I went, hi, Julian, just introduced myself. And since, even from that first email, he was welcoming. Excellent. So. Yeah, as, as he was saying when we were chatting to him um, in the green room, he, he, he does more work with kind of celebrities and sort of rock and pop artists. 
So those are the kind of people he's used to having to deal with and work with and, you know, herd like like cats. Yeah. <laughs> um, so this would have been such an easy job for him in some respects. Pretty easy, yeah. <laughs> but it also helps with the venue, how the venue's set out as yes. well. It's very easy to um, find where you need to get to. Um, it, it's quite a, an intimate venue. Oddly enough, yeah, yeah, we're at a place. We're at the Indigo, yeah, which is just one of the venues inside the dome, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Um, and so it houses. Well, it can house up to about three, five thousand, something like that. Having been up to the top of the balcony, I can confirm that it would hold about two thousand people. Mm-hmm. There's enough. There's enough space there for it to be, if not more. It might be near closer to three. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, considering the, the the main dome itself, the main arena holds up to something like twenty thousand people. Yeah, yeah. This is a very intimate area, but it's nice. Yeah. Do you think they've got the balance right of um, of art, creativity, and science? Yeah, I think they did. Um, and the the second part of the proceedings today was. Uh, you had sci-fi writers you had musicians you had uh, as I say directors of movies so you got that aspect of it and then in the evening you had the uh, which is called Space Rocks Live which is the three three bands who were completely different from each other and then obviously the, the early stage of it was the actual science facts it's all about Easter and the work mm-hmm. they do and uh, some amazing stuff came out of that as well um, I, I described it to um, Charlotte as the, the event is kind of like a three stage rocket you've got the, <laughs> the science part of it to get things going yeah. then you had the, the science fiction part of it to just to keep things moving further and then the actual the main thing at the end uh, which is kind of like your capsule on the top is the yeah. is the gig at the end of the Lonely night. Robot doing yeah. that thing just now you can hear in the background final band of the night Lonely Robot not heard them before but wow yeah they're, they're very big actually in the metal scene um, <laughs> that believe it or not is an astronaut well, somebody dressed as an astronaut. Somebody dressed as an astronaut, yeah. <laughs> Who opened the show for Lonely Robot. Came on with guitars and stuff. A couple of, a couple of astronauts. That's all good. There was another one. You know, it's right now we've got any coke, and I'm going to go and wait for the station to do the... Two astronauts. <laughs> so, yeah, it's been a an interesting day. Mm-hmm. A long day. Uh, glad you came. I am very glad I came. I wouldn't miss this for the world. Mm-hmm. Looking forward to the next one? We've been invited. Same time, same place? I am assuming so. <laughs> <laughs> i just got to see what uh, Alex and uh, Mark have to say. Yeah, and, uh, yeah. The only thing for me on a, on a negative point um, was the... The media space. Mm-hmm. It's, it's that kind was, of a marquee. Yeah, that's what was available, um, and they used it. They used it well. They used to the full capacity. But, they could. but I think we could have. It could have done with a little bit more sort of 
finesse. Mm. I think that's the word. You know, there's some tables in there, but I think I think just a little bit more care and attention in there for the whole space, just making it a little bit more appealing. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's just that's purely just a personal thing from you know a reporter who's got to work somewhere. You know, I'd like to have a nice environment to work in and to bring bring my interviewees in into into a, a nice space. It relaxes them. It gives them a better impression of the whole. It was also difficult, and and then and it had been pointed out to other people that being as it was a marquee yeah. earlier today, it did get quite warm. And yes, it was, oh, it was, it was, it was wasn't it? described as being. Oh, are we going to the sauna? Yeah, let's <laughs> let's go to the sauna. Yeah, so we interview in the oven. <laughs> um, that that would be my only gripe, really. My only niggle is, you know, it, use that use that space again next time as a media venue, but just dress it a little, mm. you know, you know, some bottles of water and stuff like that. Yeah. So, yeah. But apart from that, it's it's been an excellent event. Mm. I can't. Well, I can't well set fault out. It. Um, apart from that little thing with the media thing, I can't fault it. Yeah. I mean, granted, uh, all the people involved have been in other capacities in uh, in uh, concerts and things in the past. They've yeah. worked in other things, so they know how these kind of things work. Mm-hmm. But for a pilot pilot episode, as they call it, uh, really. yeah, you wouldn't have thought. That I think this you're going to pick the up the series, thing. aren't you? Yes, I, th- I think they need to pick up the series. Yeah, and, and commission it. <laughs> Because if this was the pilot, then I think it's got a very bright future ahead of it. Definitely, definitely. So, so once again, Mark, thanks for um, thanks for the opportunity. Thanks for uh, involving me in this project. Um, it's been an absolute pleasure, as always. Yeah, it's, it's always it's always good to work with you. And, um, so, I'm looking forward to the, to hearing and seeing the pictures and stuff that uh, the final result we've produced. And I, I get the impression that. Uh, Alex and uh, Julian are looking forward to seeing what we produced as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, from me, um, uh, what a fantastic day. Uh, looking forward to doing this again sometime. And uh, Podders, um, rock some space. Yeah. Because space, space rocks. Yeah, space definitely rocks tonight, that's for sure. So, guys, from what you heard, what are your impressions of the event? I want to be there. When's the next one? Uh, I, I hate the global airline industry and their ticket prices. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, Let's get one over your way. Uh, yeah, but America's a big country. If the, you know, say, yeah, you, oh, yeah, you, we'll get one over in California. Oh, thanks. I'm on the other coast. <laughs> yeah, that's true. You've got all the, the space stuff there. You've got it all. You've got NASA. You've got, you know, most of the astronauts, everything. Again, we're <laughs> it's about the same distance <laughs> to get to England are. as it is for me to get to California. <laughs> so, you know, and NASA's uh, scattered all over the place. Alabama, Texas, Florida, California. See, what's the, what's the furthest we fly here to Scotland? What's that, an hour, if that? And that's including uh, yeah. <laughs> baggage and security. I don't want to hear it. <laughs> When we said our goodbyes at the end of the event, Alexander Myler said to me, same again next year. So hopefully, <laughs> TGP Nominal will be covering Space Rock London 2019. And they are going to be spreading out towards all the different member states of the European Space Agency. So there could be Space Rocks all over Europe. And with a bit of luck, 
NASA may get on board, and there will be some stateside ones. But it's uh, it's their first event. We mentioned in the previous episode that Space Rocks has actually won an award for the event. It was for the Progressive Rock Music Awards. They won Event of the Year. Wow. So nice. They're doing well. They're doing really well. There's definitely going to be more then. So we're going to take another short break. And when we return, hopefully on the line should be astronomer author Richard J. Bartlett. Hello there, Gareth Jones from Gareth Jones on Speed here, just stopping by to wish the Garbage Pod nominal a nominal fifth birthday. Live long and prosper. So, welcome back, and uh, well, Ross should be still with us at the moment, but hopefully on the other fader, we should have astronomy writer Richard J. Bartlett. How are you doing, sir? I'm very well. How are you? Awesome. I mean, it's it's early for us and late for you, so in, in the way of the two Ronnies, it was kind of like it's good night for me and it's good morning from us, so... <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I just want to say thank you both to you, Mark, and uh, obviously also to Ross as well for the support that you've given me, because it really does mean a lot to me, uh, and I appreciate it, especially the reviews as well, because, uh, you know, I've got Christmas coming up, just in case, you know, as everyone does. <laughs> <laughs> and what a better gift. help me to sell books, so... <laughs> Yeah, I, I'm very appreciative of that. So um, I, uh, I want to thank you guys for that. What we wanted to do was ask you a few questions that had been submitted by the good people at the UK Astronomy Facebook group. And uh, we've got a few questions ourselves as well. Sure. And just basically have a chat about what you do and things that you've seen and stuff like that, really. Okay. So the first question that we've been submitting, and some of these have got who they've been submitted by and some of them haven't. Uh, the first one says, so I hear you're originally a Luton lad. <laughs> yeah, originally, yes. Uh, I'm from Luton. You wouldn't know it from the way I talk now. But, um, yeah, I was born there. I emigrated when I was uh, 33, 14 years ago. So I'll let you guys do the math. And um, actually, technically, I guess, and, and, and people that, that come from this area will appreciate this. I come from Stopsley, which is a village that uh, was kind of swallowed up into Luton many, many moons ago. But if you're born and raised in, in Stopsley, then you, you tend to claim very proudly that you were from Stopsley. As I recall, <laughs> your dad did, didn't he, when we met? Because uh, the... <laughs> yeah, Richard right. came over overseas to meet us at UK Astronomy. And yeah, I'd mentioned that he was from Luton and his dad <laughs> said otherwise. Not not being nasty, but if I had the opportunity to say that I was from somewhere other than Luton, I'd probably say that too. <laughs> I've never been there, so I can't comment. And of course, I live here in the States now, and uh, everybody just says, oh, you're from London, right? 
And I, I will actually correct, <laughs> but um, especially when you know sometimes people don't even know where London is, and you know I, I'd say, well, you know, I'm from a town called Luton, which is about 30 miles north of London, and they're like, oh, okay. And I said, don't worry, you know, it's not the kind of place you would typically go visit. So <laughs> not really. No, you, you'd only go to Luton if you had a reason to go to Luton. <laughs> Yeah, there's, there's uh, and I, I, I must apologize sincerely to anybody who actually ha- happens to be listening to this who's actually from Luton, but I can see and I can think of no reason, frankly, why you'd want to actually visit Luton. <laughs> Did you know that Luton is actually a planet in space 1999? Yes, actually, I think I remember that. And they, they actually have that show over here on, on one of the, the kind of channels that you can subscribe to where it has a lot of the old TV shows. And I watch it more for the theme music because the theme music on the first series was epic and then on the second series they went all disco with it (laughs) I actually don't mind the second series music that much Uh, obviously it's a different composer and everything but yeah yeah the the first one is iconic uh it was barry gray wasn't it the guy who did the um thunderbirds and all that kind of stuff so uh yeah it wasn't actually pronounced luton though. i think it was called luton or luton or something like that <laughs> but it was definitely that, luton <laughs> yeah because th- that's how the, the the few people who consider themselves to be upper class who, that actually live in luton uh, actually, so it's the same in La- in certain places in London because um, there's areas that used to be quite working class back in the day, and now the the corporates have moved in with these luxury apartments and stuff. And you've got places like it used to be called Clapham, uh, <laughs> which the, the the rich people call it Clam. <laughs> really, that's that's awesome. I do still pronounce Luton. Appropriately, I, I dropped the T in the middle. Luton. So it's Luton. <laughs> Luton Airport. The, this is where my, my British accent kind of comes out again. It, it resurfaces. I have to pronounce my T's very carefully over here in, in the US because otherwise it just get looks like I'm not talking English, which just kind of irritates me. <laughs> but if, if I say Luton, then they won't know what the heck I'm talking about. If I say Luton, they have a, a clear understanding of what at least I'm saying, even if I've, they don't know anything about I've come across that myself with the word water. Yeah. Water. <laughs> I want some bread and butter. <laughs> but, um, yeah, when I was... Uh, where was I? Buffalo. I was in Buffalo, and uh, everyone thought I was Australian. I've had that, too. Yeah, I've <laughs> had I, that. I, that. That's when I say, good day, mate. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, I've, I've had that. I've even, I still to this day, I don't know if they were serious or not. I, I honestly, I, I think they were serious. Somebody asked me if I was French. Um, <laughs> I, I don't understand. You know, I, they, they played it real straight when they, when they said it. So I'm thinking they were serious. In a way, I can kind of get it because... Have you heard someone speak who's from a Canadian French quarter speaking English? No. There is a kind of a similarity from from a French Canadian to your accent. To be honest, <laughs> I'll uh, have to take your word for it. <laughs> so, whereabouts do you live now? Whereabouts in the US? 
I live in, uh, I guess you'd call it like a, I don't know if suburb is really the right word, but uh, an area of, of LA called Studio City. And it's called Studio City, I think, really just because it used to be near the studios and the, the studios have since kind of dispersed a little bit. But we get a lot of um, people that work in the, the TV and the movie industry that kind of live around here. Because Burbank and, uh, and and Glendale and Hollywood, uh, where the the studios are, are really actually not that far away. Mm-hmm. It's literally five or six miles. Um, oh, so it's an area of LA. So do you think the area was actually created for the people that uh, worked in the industry? Well, I don't know how to answer that question without showing my ignorance. I <laughs> I'm just wondering, because being called Studio City, it makes sense that it could be an overspill for people that used to work in the industry, but who knows? So somebody probably yeah. knows. If, if you know, if you know, let us know. <laughs> and then we'll let Richard uh, know. Yeah, my wife might know, but uh, I, I don't. I don't know. See, what I really want to know is what are your skies like there. Is, is, what's the weather uh, like? Is it better than here? The weather is definitely better, and uh, most nights are clear. That's the oh, good news. I hate you. I know. Nah. Uh, I know what's coming. I know. Oh, there's a but. Excellent. So, Mark, you know what's coming. What what am I going to say next? Light pollution. Yes, it's terrible. (laughs) Um, Is it? Yeah, London, you reckon? Um, uh, yeah. And, and actually, this is really, to some extent, why I started writing. To some extent. Well, because you could never <laughs> see. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> okay, I was going to say, how did you learn the skies then? Well, I didn't have to because I knew it already. But, <laughs> oh, um, check him out. You know, I, I sound cocky when I say it, but I've been into astronomy since I was six, so I, I, I knew the sky with the exception of the southern hemisphere i can be under almost any sky and just look up and obviously i i, I can pick out constellations and things but when i came to to la the, the skies are very light polluted and uh i mean you, you do get some haze especially late at night and early in the morning as well that in, in the autumn and in the uh the spring so it does kind of cloud over a little bit but um on any kind of clear night from where I am, realistically, you can really only see up to about magnitude three. It's not conducive, frankly, uh, to any kind of astronomical activity, really, apart from looking at the moon on planets. I, I say this, I mean, I, I, I arrived here and it was very depressing, and it still is. But at the same time, I, I thought, well, if I can't do astronomy, and at the time I was out of work, you know, what, what do I want to do? And I thought, well, I've always wanted to write about it anyway. And I thought, well, then I'm going to write about astronomy. And, and the first thing that I did was really a, a guide to like the next year, the 2015 guide. Uh, and then I did a five-year guide. And the money that I, I made from those books was enough to buy myself a telescope. And I made sure I got a go-to because I couldn't pick out the faint stars that I would need to star hop. And that's why I wrote Easy Things to See with a Small Telescope was because I thought, okay, if I can see it with a small telescope from my terrible light polluted skies in LA, then there's no reason why you shouldn't be able to take a small telescope and, and use that book to find other things than that sky under almost any condition, really. It's yeah. almost like you sacrificed yourself to go there to teach others. <laughs> if I <laughs> could see it. Any of you can do it. <laughs> the the book itself is such a good beginner's guide as well. It's so, it's so comprehensive. Yeah, it's got to be on par with the uh, turn left at a Ryan, isn't it? That's what everyone always bangs about, that one. But 
I think I think oh, Richards is fantastic. Thank you for saying that. Um, I would say to use an American phrase, and I, I made lemonade out of lemons. I did the best of a, of a bad situation, astronomically anyway. And to some extent, you know, I, I looked at Turn Left at Orion, and, and Turn Left at Orion is an excellent book. But at the same time, as I wrote in in uh, the introduction to Easy Things. When I was a kid living in Luton, I had, <laughs> I had my telescope and I, I I just looked at the same five six objects kind of every time and and, and I kind of lost interest to some extent because I didn't know what else to look for or I guess more specifically I didn't know how to find the things that I really wanted to to, to look for and this is why I I thought about writing that book as well because I wanted everything in the book to be easily found with with a small telescope so everything really. If you looked at a, at a at the sky through a finder scope, every object that's listed is either a bright star or else it's something close to a bright star. So you don't have to star hop. You just have to make sure that you get that bright star in the finder scope to some extent or another, and then you can actually find the object that we're looking for. So basically using the brighter objects as signposts. Yeah, really. I'm a manual guy, as you know. I, I hunt the sky and star hop, as you say. That's the basics of it, isn't it? You, you find a bright star, you look around what's there. That's, that's how I started, because I didn't know anything about the sky at all. So I was trying to find things and, you know, I was in the same place as you, just not intelligent enough to write a book. <laughs> so yeah, I, that's exactly what I do. So now, instead of like looking at a star and going, oh, what's that thing next to it there? And then come to look it up and find it and stuff. Now, I can just use Richard's book and go, ah, he's already telling me what's there or oh, what's there as well. And then you then slowly go to slightly dimmer stars or dimmer objects and you keep going until you get to the point where, right, I can't see any more because I haven't got a big enough telescope. Go out and buy a bigger telescope. Right. <laughs> uh, the, the star hopping, that's what I did when I lived under darker skies in, in Oklahoma. And mm. um, I had um, a, a manual Dobsonian telescope. It was an Orion XT telescope and uh, I love that thing. Uh, they're, my, they're my favourites. I love Dobbins. Oh yeah, I'm a Dob snob uh, apparently. I, <laughs> but the, I, I, can, I honestly I can't praise the Orion XT enough, frankly. And if I could have at that time gotten a, a go to Orion that basically tracked the sky as well as as it uh, as the sky moved, you know, back in 2015 when I bought my telescope, then I would have. I, I bought a, a Celestron, which is perfectly fine. But um, I loved star hopping I, because the, there's. I don't know. It's like going hunting or something. You, 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 you know what you want to bag, if you will. And yep. there's nothing quite like finding it and bagging it and going, okay, I've got it. And um, every night I went out, I found something new. I, I have a few things that I wanted to find. And sometimes I just totally stumbled upon them, uh, some things, usually double stars. And yep. that was the best thing in the world. That's exactly what I tell people. I was like, when they, everyone have go-tos and that, and I'm like, I love the hunt i love the you know you're just out there for an hour or so and as i said as you say you're looking for an object you star hop and you see something fuzzy in between and you go back to it and you go oh what's that then you know magnify a bit zoom in a bit it's a globular cluster or something or there's a little galaxy there and you think oh what is that man that's cool yeah and then you almost yeah. lose track of the original object you're going for 
because then you find something else and that's the beauty yeah. of it isn't it that's it's, that's why i love manual and hunting and searching some people don't some people just want to see the object and they're happy with that but for me no that's my passion that's what i love right it's not it's nice to meet someone exactly the same <laughs> <laughs> honestly i think that there's a lot of us around that that, that feel the same way and i, I think uh, go-tos are, are great if you do want to just go outside and maybe you don't have long for whatever reason maybe you know you know that the weather's going make a turn for the worst or you just simply just don't have the time go to's in that respect if you're under dark skies that's great i'm not gonna ever knock anybody for choosing oh, go to definitely um, i mean especially if you've got kids because you don't want to be sat out there for half an hour trying oh, to find the object and they're just sat right. there bored and you stand there and you say oh, it was here last night i know hang on, hang on. <laughs> it was right there Right, it's it's hang on. I know it's around here somewhere. And then like the kids stand there shivering, you know, and, yeah. and they're like, "Can we go inside? Can you can you just no no? You can't go inside because if you go inside, it's bright, and then you won't be able to see. Come back out again. Stick and then around. they say to you, then they say to you, can't someone just write a book about this? Right, exactly. funny you should say that. How many have you written now? I don't know, honestly. Um, <laughs> I usually write or compile a, a new book every two months or so. That's usually the way it goes. To some extent, what I started out writing, the, the annual guides, um, I wouldn't say it's become a bit of an anchor for me or, or kind of a ball and chain necessarily, but these sell well. Um, I mean, easy things to sell uh, to see with a small telescope and signposts uh, to the stars. They sell well too, but the guides sell pretty well, fairly kind of consistently, especially leading up in, into the new year. So I, I write those every year and they take me some time. And uh, I usually find that I'm, I'm, I'm spending a good, on average, for those guides, probably two to four months to get them all done. And then I have to kind of start writing another book, you know, something else that, that really kind of deeply interests me. And it's not unusual for me to kind of abandon something halfway through because it's just not working and then I'll, I'll go back to it later. And in that case, you know, usually I've wasted a month. Sometimes that's the way I think of it. I've, I've spent a month doing something and then I decide, okay, it's not working and, I'll, and I'll, I'll come back to it another time. If you just look at the annual guides, uh, I've been doing this since 2014. Uh, so it's like four years. I do like three different kind of versions of the annual guides. So I guess that's 12 right there. I've got the easy things to, to see with small telescope. I've got signposts to stars. I've got another book, which is more kind of general in terms of uh, things you can see with your eyes and just a explanation of the constellations. Um, so that's another one. That's three. I, I, I have the little kind of um, notebooks that I do. That's four. I've I got the kind of book that goes through deep sky objects and basically a, a list of observation like DSO list, if you're a deep sky object list that you can look at at any given time. That's another one. I'm guessing much you know, about 17 or so. And a I've kids' got, book as well, haven't you? Yeah, they've got the kids' book as well. Uh, what's that now? 18 ish. Yeah. So <laughs> <laughs> Busy man then. I've always got plans for more books. I want to write. I'm just finishing off, literally just finishing the US Kindle edition of, of next year's guide. But I also produce like a, a PDF copy as well that I make available for free. So after I get done with the Kindle version, then I'm going to make the, uh, the PDF version, which should only take me about a week or so. If that, then I'll upload it. After that, I'm writing a book which is actually inspired by by music more than anything else, and just talking about astronomy and and talking about my experiences with astronomy and what inspires me about astronomy. It's kind of a, a definite labor of love. 
I don't care if it only sells two copies. At least I've, I've written it. <laughs> it's, it's more of a legacy, I think, for my kids. I'm halfway through writing a book, actually, about solar and lunar eclipses for the next 10 years. And just because of the, the data that was involved, and I was on a bit of a time crunch, I got halfway through it, and then I put it on the back burner. Uh, I'm going to pick that up probably early next year. Richard, how are you lined up, actually, for the next eclipse? That's probably not the greatest of areas to be seeing it from, is it? I'm assuming you mean the one at the end of January. Um, no, the the big one in, is it 2024? Oh, the 2024? Yeah. The solar eclipse, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, it won't be any better for me here in LA than the last one was but with the last eclipse I remember I was looking around for flights and I was looking for hotels a, a year before and almost everything was booked up my oldest son lives in, in Louisville Kentucky Ooh, and yeah, uh, the, the line of totality went like literally just 40 or 50 miles to the south of him so I thought okay and it just happened to be right before his birthday as well so I wanted to fly out there and take him to the eclipse and celebrate his birthday I had these plans and uh, I had to you know obviously put the time off and everything I, I looked a year a little bit more than a year actually before the eclipse and almost everything was booked up I couldn't get out there so I'm not going to get caught like that again uh, <laughs> the next one is in 2024 and uh, the, the path of the eclipse actually goes up uh, up through Mexico through Texas and it goes off towards the, the northeast of the country so it goes off towards uh, the Boston area and, and the, the New York and the New England area and uh, we've got friends in Austin and we've told them they are not allowed to move until the end of 2024 <laughs> uh, so my uh, my my co-host John, he's uh, he's actually got friends in Texas, and he's also got friends in Syracuse. So either way, he's got it covered. <laughs> oh yeah, that sounds like a, that a plan. You know, if one friend can't help him, out, another can. Because <laughs> uh, he he did send me some photos of what he got because he's he's based in in uh, Pennsylvania and. Uh, yeah, that wasn't fantastic. We did get some good pictures from different people uh, around the States. We got people from Southern California. We got people from Kentucky. We got people for, uh, that were in Illinois at the time, um, New York. So we had pretty much right across the country, we had people sending us photographs that we put into the show notes when we were talking mm -hmm. uh, about the eclipse because we had a guy from NASA on the show, a guy called Noah Petro. And one of the things that he works on is the LRO, the uh, Lunar Reconnaissance Ob Orbiter. And uh, so he lives for the moon, pretty much. So having the eclipse for him, um, he could talk a lot about it. So we had a, a fantastic show, and I was really surprised the amount of people that were sending stuff in. We had even people from the uh, UK Astronomy Facebook group sending in pictures, because uh, some people were flown out to the States to, to view it. Um, and we even had a couple of shots that a tiny little chunk of of it that we got in the uk mainly down cornwall mm. and places like that but um uh yeah so we got a, a quite a good mix so yeah i was just interested on uh on on where you're hoping to be really for 
for it. Austin. That's <laughs> it's my target. Our next big eclipse here, uh, well, it's not going to be, we're not going to see the full thing, but uh, it's 2026, so we've got another couple of years after you before we uh, get to see something uh, a little bit different. Right. It's, a, it's a long wait, but um, it's going to be worth it. Vicky Pink asked, uh, what are your favourite options in the sky and why? I like double stars, actually, because uh, they're, they're one of the things that are not really affected by light pollution. But uh, just beyond that, there's just so many of them. And as I said, you can actually star hop and, and stumble upon a, a double star you know and, and, and Ross said this to you then you're like oh okay what's that and you have to kind of look it up and uh, you you actually even though you know you haven't actually truly been the first person to see it you, you feel as though you've discovered something I like that with double stars even when I'm, I'm looking for something else the the cool thing about a, a double star as well is that the, the, as with most deep sky objects there is a, a, a challenge involved in that Obviously, you need to be able to, to, to split the double star. So up to a certain magnification, it's going to appear as a single star. And then at what magnification can you split the star into two? And usually you find that, that you, you go high with the, with the magnification. You might go to, say, 150 times and see if it's split. And then you can drop the magnification down to, say, 50. And then you can look very carefully to see if you can still notice if it's split or not. I like that challenge to it. Perhaps more than anything, though, I, I like the colors that are involved. Everybody, for example, raves about Alberio in yeah. the constellation Cygnus. It's most people's favorite double star, at least in the, in the northern sky, because the stars are, are gold and blue, and it's a very pronounced color. Having said that, you know, I, I like uh, you know some of the other stars as well. Like my actual favorite double star is uh, it's a star called Kuma, I believe is how you say it, and it's spelled K-U-M-A. It's officially known as New Draconis in the constellation of Draco because it's a fairly wide double star that you can easily split with binoculars and uh, it, it's two equally bright white stars. I don't know, I, I just find them cool. I like double stars and multiple stars. Ladies and gentlemen, you know it, you love it, you can't live without it. This is TGP Normal. Nominal, damn! I do have to ask a question from Mick Scott because he's my right-hand astronomy man, so we've heard about him a lot. And he said, uh, if, you, if you had the choice to colonise another planet, which would it be? So let's say you could colonise any planet it was possible, you had the technology. Which one would you want to go to and colonise and do something with and um, why? That, that's a great question. I would say, and I know this is a little bit of a controversial kind of thing to say, that Mars bores me, frankly. <laughs> it's, a, it's a bunch of rusty coloured rocks it's, it's I, think that, I think that I think that answers one of other questions then doesn't it would you do like would you actually would you think we'd actually go to Mars nah boring um well, <laughs> I, as a species if you were at some point we will but uh, would I go I would go for a visit you know so and then I'd come back again like yeah okay been there uh of course there, there are literally thousands of uh, exoplanets planets that orbit other stars most of those are way too close to their their star and way too hot to my knowledge we, i think we've only found uh, a, a small handful of uh, planets which may actually lie within what they call the the goldilocks zone which is the, the, the habitable area of, of that star's 
solar system, if you will. Yeah. It's just the right distance from the sun for it to be nice and cozy and warm and potentially have water and uh, maybe even life. Uh, off the top of my head, I, I don't know which planets those are. Within our own solar system, if I could live anywhere, I know that uh, it doesn't have a solid surface, but uh, I would probably shoot for Saturn. You can't mess with those rings. <laughs> no, I was going to say, if you hadn't said it, I was going to say mine would be Saturn. If, like, you could say float on the top or something, and live yeah, in something uh, floating there to see those rings that close and stuff. But you could build yourself Cloud City, you know, so... It always comes back to Star Wars with you, doesn't it? <sighs> No, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> I fancy yourself a bit of a Lando. Yeah, okay. Yeah. But here's the thing as well, though. I mean, I, I mean, I, I say this: you've, you've got a, you've got a ton of moons to look at too. Uh, you know, and you, you've got some, you know, that, that are very kind of close by that would whiz around the planet pretty quick. You know, and then you've got the the other moons like uh, Enceladus, for example, and uh, Tethys, and and. and but beyond that, yes, of course, you know, you, you could, you know, imagine pointing, pointing a, a telescope with a high magnification at those rings and be able to see the different chunks. The, the only downside, I would imagine, at, at first, be like Jurassic Park, it'd be oohs and ahs, you know. <laughs> but then you, you, you kind of look at it and you, you, you'd see the rings and you'd be like, you know what, I've been there, I've looked at them, and now they're kind of in the way. <laughs> so... <laughs> <laughs> Not, not good for stargazing, is it? <laughs> no, probably not with them in the way. You might be able to look back at Earth, though. I think if you're looking at Saturn, if, if, you, if you could live on Titan, and be, you'd be able to see what you wanted to see and then uh, just get on with what you need to get on with. Yeah, t- Titan's a viable option, potentially. I mean, they, they say that actually Titan is, is like a primitive Earth in deep freeze. So I mean, yeah. If you if you could warm it up and and make it more Earth-like and maybe clear up some of those clouds so you could actually see the sky every now and then, that would be nice. Otherwise, what's the point? <laughs> what about uh, if you're on Saturn or something, seeing the the rings actually go up, almost like eclipse the sun itself? That would be cool. That, I mean, I, that'd I, be I, pretty amazing. Yeah, I I could go for that. Just see the the sun kind of blinking in and out as as the as it passes behind the rings. Yeah, first yeah. couple of times, and then you'll just be bored again. Yeah, again, you got the kid next year, and they're standing there going, oh, it's cold. Can we get back inside that? No, 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 wait, yeah. wait. It's Dad, really I, was, cool. I was born here, Dad. I see it every day. It's boring. Right. <laughs> Kids are standing there shrugging their shoulders going, eh. Yeah. Sharp, sharp, you little Saturnite. Right. right. You don't know what it's like. I was born on Earth. We didn't have rings. <laughs> I'm an Earthling. Right. <laughs> Um, Richard, I'm not 100% sure, but would the the possible candidates for Goldilocks be like the Kepler? Some of them. Uh, Kepler has, has discovered a, a ton of, of new worlds out there, literally thousands. Uh, I don't know what the tally is. It's like every couple of months they... I, I think they, they seem to do announcements in, in batches because otherwise <laughs> you, you can't... 
You can't have an announcement every time that they discover another planet, because otherwise it'd be five every day or something. Mm. More than that, probably. But Kepler was, uh, if I'm correctly, specifically launched to, uh, to look for Earth-like planets. The James Webb Space Telescope as well, it uh, might be wrong in this. I think that that's also got, uh, as part of its kind of mission, the, the goal of searching for, for planets that may have uh, an atmosphere that are, that's capable of supporting life. The main part of its life, it's supposed to be the other end of the spectrum to what the Hubble is looking at. So that if they can keep the Hubble operational, you're going to get images from both ends of the spectrum. The Hubble's done amazingly well. It's been up there for over 20 years and it's still going. It's a bit, a bit like the Rovers as well. Yeah. Although I think that new dust storm has uh, caused a bit of a... Yeah. Trouble, isn't it? Was it was it curiosity? Curiosity is having a bit of a uh, it's kind of they, they, it's woken up luckily, isn't it, from what I read. Yeah, but, but it's, it's, kind of, it's got a glitch. The same as like Voyager. Like some things oh, yeah. they build just go on forever, don't they? Oh, Vega, yeah. <laughs> Alright, what's next? There's a good question here and uh, it, it kind of forms into things that we've been mentioning on the, uh, the the monthly Sky Guides If you could create your own constellation what would it be and what would it represent? <laughs> you know, that, that's a great question, I like that What would it be? <laughs> well, nothing you, you rude know, No, nothing rude Okay, but it will yes, okay Everything is better with bacon, and I feel that the pig is <laughs> severely uh, underrepresented, uh, you know, when it comes to astronomy, and I, I think that I would create Orcus the pig. Oh, just, oh my, my wife would love you. My bacon. <laughs> she, she is obsessed with pigs. She loves them. We've got a sponsored pig and a local pig sanctuary nearby that we visit. and <laughs> Bacon the sandwich, yeah. Yeah. Um. <laughs> So there you go. Was it was it Porky the pig? Porcus. Porcus. Yeah, you got to think of the Latin. So it, ah, yes. To... Chuck a US at the end. Right. This this really That's goes serious. fits in greatly with what we've been talking about in the past. Because I mean, you've got Ross there with his with his Johnny Five cluster. I saw uh, you know the Owl Nebula or ET. Well, it's more yeah. of a cluster, isn't it? It, I took a picture of it and it looked like Johnny Five and I found a picture of him with his arms up and it's a spinning yeah, yeah. image of it so I was like that's it it's Johnny yeah. Five uh, and, and then you had Stacey Downson with a knickknack nebula wasn't it yeah we've put it down as a challenge to try and see what we can rename some of these constellations as gets people out doesn't it doing something a bit more fun and yeah absolutely I mean and, and it's using your your imagination and uh, I think you know when it comes to kids that that's the best thing to do you know you say well, what does it look like to you I mean, there's there's a star cluster which uh, is in is in the book the easy things and it has the boring name of ngc 663 <laughs> yeah um, i think it's in cassiopeia off the top of my head but yeah. uh, it it reminds me a little bit of the owl cluster because it has uh, not not two but four bright stars and to me it actually looks like two pairs of eyes looking back at me and it's just slightly creepy it's almost ghostly um, it's fun isn't it I think like human beings you know since our ancestors have looked up and they made patterns and yes now we're, we're looking closer we're now actually doing the same with other smaller clusters aren't we and things like that you kind of just make up there's one isn't there that actually I always talk about it in Ryan's arm that's the number 32 32 or 37? Mm-hmm. Uh, 30, um, 37. 37, 37, 37, that's yeah. the one. It's 37, it's, yeah. There's probably a 32 out there as well somewhere. But yeah, it's you, like, what are the chances of that? 
There's got to be a 42 somewhere. That's probably why I said 32. <laughs> um, but you've seen the coat hanger, right? Yeah, I was just about to mention that. Yeah, the coat hanger's mental. That's brilliant. That's one that you can easily see with pair of binoculars. In fact, it's something that's better seen with a small telescope or binoculars just because it covers a fairly large area of sky. You can actually pick it out with just your eyes if you know exactly where to look and you've got good skies. This isn't the one they called the roller coaster as well. It's just literally a lot of line of stars that kind of goes up and down. And <laughs> isn't that the? Um, I read about, I think I read about that somewhere. Dipper, I think I read about it? that somewhere. I don't know that one, honestly. I think he made that up. That's that's the Big Dipper. Oh, really. <laughs> <laughs> the Big Dipper, yeah. That, oh, yeah, it's that one. <laughs> so speak the constellations there. Which which one do you like the most? What's your one that you love? Because everyone likes constant, but usually most people say Orion or things like that. So, which which one's yours? You can say Orion. <laughs> I can't now. Not not now. You said it. <laughs> I've ruined it for you. I I don't think I have one, honestly. Uh, it, it sounds really nerdy to say it, but I do have a soft spot, I guess, for Cygnus. For one thing. I mean, it passes pretty high overhead, but obviously just beyond that, you, you do have the, the summer Milky Way passing through it. And if you're not lucky enough to be able to see the Milky Way as it stretches down to Sagittarius and Scorpius, then Cygnus is really your best bet for being able to see the Milky Way. And I think it more has to do with the fact that I've got some fairly fond memories uh, as, a, as a kid of being able to see the Milky Way going through Cygnus. And, of course, it's got Alberio, and you can't fault that. <laughs> <laughs> Back to his love. <laughs> right. And it has my favorite little star cluster as well, Messier 29, because it, it's very overlooked. And to be honest with you, it, it, it's not spectacular, but it, it does remind me a little bit of, of a mini Pleiades. So, you know, I, I feel like it's it's my own little pet star cluster because it, it's overlooked and underappreciated by everybody else. Just You're just there looking, letting it know that you're, you know, you're still yes. looking at it. People still care. I think for me, <laughs> possibly Gemini is popular for me because of the fact that the amount of times that it actually pops up in the Sky Guide. Oh, yeah? Yeah. I mean, it's every other month, I think, we have something that's either on, um, you know, one of the twins' foot or something or other. You know, it's around that yeah. area. <laughs> I do like Gemini for, for the kids and that because it actually, you know, a lot of the constellations you look at don't, yeah, they kind of represent what they are in the sky. If you look right. at Gemini, it is two stick people holding hands, isn't it? Yeah. It is. Yeah. It, you, you, it, whenever you say to kids, right, what do you reckon that one is? They're like, that's two people. You're like, yeah. <laughs> Whereas you look at the other ones, and sometimes you're a bit like, really? Two stars and a line, that's a dog. Mm. <laughs> as, as we established last month, uh, you've got the one that represents a dog, which is the major, and the minor, we've discovered that that's probably a stick that the dog, <laughs> yeah. the dog was actually chasing. Yeah, we're right. going to call it the stick. <laughs> that would make more sense, really. Okay, so we've had a, a question from someone called Lisa Pinheiro, and uh, she asked the question, is space silent? I, I was looking forward to this one. I think it depends who's up there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, in space, no one can hear you scream. There is a reason for that, in that if you were outside, and assuming, of course, that you didn't have your, your spacesuit on where you could hear through through the spacesuit anyway, people talking to you. There's no air, and air is what carries sound waves. 
so without any air, when the atmosphere, I should say to be more specific, there is no sound. So technically, I would say the answer is there is no sound in space. But having said that, you can, uh, you know, with a radio telescope, and it, actually, if you if you had an old school TV with, with an antenna, you, you can actually hear the background radiation that was left over from from the Big Bang in the static that you pick up on your TV antenna. You know, it's also picked up. There's this background radiation that's that's picked up with radio uh, radar telescopes, and it kind of makes this this kind of staticky kind of noise. So in that respect, there is a sound to space but if you were able to actually stick your head out of a window of a spaceship and listen for sound you wouldn't hear anything just because in the vacuum of space there's no air that would actually transmit the sound waves if that makes sense yeah I, I think totally. if you go onto the I think it's the Jodrell Bank website uh, they do give you some examples of things like pulsars that you can you can hear through yeah. what they've found on the radio telescopes. And it's actually fantastic sounds, very eerie. Uh, I, I wouldn't suggest listening to them in a dark room without lights on. It's, uh, it's, uh... <laughs> <laughs> so they've done the same with our sun, haven't they? You can, you can listen to the sun. They say the sun almost has like, almost like a, a, a heartbeat and things like that and quakes and, didn't they do that yeah. stuff going they on? They did it recently with those those two um, pulsars that actually smashed into each other, and it kind of made a high pitched whistle, and then it went to a pop where they, where it actually hit. Uh, uh-huh. It was quite amazing to to hear. I think uh, NASA actually put out something as well uh, a few months back where you could hear Jupiter. I think I heard that somewhere. Yeah, this sound. But you need equipment to, to hear it. It's bizarre. It's there are there are sounds, but it's not audible sounds. If you get, if you get my meaning, it's, a bit it's weird. <laughs> <laughs> I think a lot of the questions that have been asked on on the list, you've actually covered through general conversation that we've had. But there is one last one, and uh, as I say, I'm not looking forward to this one. Um, <laughs> I'm just going to sit back and listen. Should Pluto be a planet again? Because now we can see it in more detail. I think it should always have been a planet, honestly. Thank you. Um, um. <laughs> and I'm only saying that because it's 12.30 here and I need to go to bed. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> the, the reason why I, I say that is because I, un- I understand the logic and the reason why you want to relegate it to a dwarf planet. And I'm actually not against that in principle. And I think it's fine if you want to bump Ceres, you know, the largest asteroid, up to dwarf planet status because it meets that criteria and blah, blah, blah. And that's great. I'm happy for Ceres. But you see, I think that Pluto should have just kept, if you like, honorary status as a planet. I wouldn't say that I, I got into an argument with some guy at that Griffith Observatory about this. But I. Um, but you did. I kind of. <laughs> <laughs> I um, Griffith isn't very far from me and uh, I haven't been up there for a little while actually but uh, they, uh, I went for a job there when I first came to LA 
and uh, it was basically acting as as a guide there at the observatory and um, this is really before I started writing and I had to go along and I had to meet with the director of the, of the observatory and honestly I can't remember his name now I had to have a, a little written test and it was always different kind of questions on there like for example why the stars different colors and all this kind of stuff and it, and it said um, is is Pluto a planet and I wrote no but it should be or something along those lines you know it, it should have kept it should have been kept that way as an honorary kind of status or something and uh, he said oh if anybody asks you is Pluto a planet he says the answer is no that's it just just, just no it's not and I said yeah but and he goes no 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 there's no yeah but Pluto is not a planet that right now according to the definition of the word planet Pluto is not a planet, and that that was that was it. That was the end of the discussion, kind of thing. I was like, okay. And nor is Earth. That, that's just it, you know. And, and and this is this is an argument that we could have in all all kinds of facets of life. In in that people seem to think that it has to be one way or another, and life is not like that. The universe is not like that. That there are gray areas, and I think that um, Pluto, yes, it orbits out amongst you know a a, a ton of, of other small planetoids, for want of a better word, in a, in a far-flung region of the solar system, and, and obviously it was the first of its kind to be discovered. I, I get that, and I know the argument as well about what well, people thought that Ceres was a planet when they discovered it, until they started finding the other asteroids. I, I think it was badly handled as well in terms of the astronomical union, the way that they, they went about it. They went back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, and it just got covered a lot in the news about how they couldn't make up their minds, and and then it just made the astronomical community look bad to some extent. I, I just want to say, let's just leave it alone. <laughs> let's keep it a planet. As, as, as we <laughs> mentioned in our previous episode, it's not something that should have been voted for. No. It should um, be based on its geological criteria, basically. Geographically, it's the second most complex body in our solar system, second to Earth. I think it's a very unusual. I'm I'm very curious to see what New Horizons shows us of, of this um, Kuiper Belt object that is going to pass uh, literally New Year's Day. Yeah, yeah. I'm very curious to see what kind of images it, it returns and how they it compares with Pluto. Um, but um, just for the sake of um, simplicity and honestly, tradition to some extent, Pluto should have just remained as it was. The way I look at it. Yes, if you look at the picture of now Pluto, we're lucky enough that we've got a good picture, haven't we, that we can see yeah. what it looks like. All the others just look like lumps of rock, don't they? Mm-hmm. Pluto does. Right, right. Pluto's got features. It looks completely different. If you put them both together, they're completely different. And you look and you think, yeah, the others are just lumps of rock. Pluto looks like it's got more going on there. There's, there's constantly something happening on Pluto. Which you can't so, say that about some of the other places. Yeah, all they need to do is what what science constantly does. You just kind of like, you know, you, you evolve. Mm. You go, right, well, we've done that, but now we've discovered something new and it's doing this. Now we need to reinvent it and bring out a new definition for a planet. That's all, that's all you need to do. You need to sit there and go, look, well, it was right at the time, but, you know, it's not that time anymore. That's Let's a, move on. That is the problem with some of the old school scientists is that some rules have been written and they're like well these are the rules that's it end of right yeah, is, isn't that religion <laughs> <laughs> you shouldn't combine the two and that's the subject of a podcast <laughs> <laughs> so yeah I, I, I think 
I think you're right, Richard. Even if they just give it as an honorary status, as a kind of a, a Lumini kind of <laughs> planet, um, yeah, that would be awesome. But yeah, it really should be reinstated. Yeah, and there's been some debates about that again, you know, about bringing it back. I don't know how much uh, traction it's going to get, but I, I wouldn't be against it. Now, Richard, you're going to release something for World Space Week, aren't you? Absolutely. So I try on a regular basis to to do some freebies and some giveaways, usually in terms of the, the Kindle editions. I can't literally give away paperback copies of our books. It's just not practical on a number of different levels. But what I've got is the guide to next year, uh, obviously 2019 I, I produced one for the UK I also produced one for uh, for North America and uh, I, I already had the paperback versions out there and I have the UK Kindle version on the UK Amazon site right now but um, I'm just literally finishing off the the US Kindle version and I should have that ready to go by by that that weekend which would be the 6th and 7th when I remember correctly so I'm going to make that available both the UK and the US version the Kindle edition I'm going to make that available for free that weekend uh, I'll do what I always do I'll run it from Saturday through to Monday and I'll also make a PDF copy uh, available for free that anybody can download and share to whoever that they like so what we'll do we'll put links up to that on the show notes so people can go in and look at that and uh, and have a look at your books yeah and just remember to actually go on and uh, rate it <laughs> give him an honest review that's all he asks he's giving this book away for free so just give him a review it's great because then that helps him later on and he can do more free stuff you know UK astronomy is always posting in their free stuff I don't know he makes any money and keeps it going what I what I in uh, Christmas season if you will is more than I make throughout the rest of the year and, and I wish it was enough for me to retire on it's not I still have a regular kind of day job so this is very much um, you know something that, that we use to kind of uh, supplement our, our regular income but yeah any reviews are always very welcome even the ones, frankly, that, that aren't so positive, if I'm honest, just because then I, I do try to be objective about it. I, I read the, the reviews and I do respond to them. So um, if you have any comments or suggestions, of course, you can always email me, but uh, you're, you're free to, to leave reviews as well. If anybody wants to kind of reach out, my email address is astronomywriter at gmail.com, and that will be in the, all of the different editions of the books as well. You're free to contact me at any time. Now, Richard, because of the work you've done over the years and the connection that you've got with the UK Astronomy Group and uh, and all that kind of stuff, we would love to make you one of our honorary crew members if you would like to partake in that. Oh, absolutely. What we have here is one of our mission patches, which we would love to send to you. I would be honoured. Thank you. Appreciate it. So, Richard, it's been an absolute pleasure talking with you uh, tonight. Yeah, hopefully we can meet up with you again sometime soon. Yeah, anytime you want to chat, just let me know. Uh, if you want to throw more questions at me, feel free. Thoroughly enjoyed our chat tonight. I appreciate your time. And, uh, yeah, I hope to talk to you again soon. 
Spamhead Productions are a small independent sound recording company based in rural Hertfordshire. We specialise in creating content for all your podcasting needs, whether it be field recordings, fox pops, or capturing the atmosphere during social events. Editing is a very time-consuming job, so Spamhead Productions are on hand to take away some of the burden for you. Just advise us on how you'd like your content to sound, and we will do the rest. We can even help you design and manage a website for your podcast too. Visit us now, spamheadproductions.weebly.com. That's spamheadproductions.weebly.com. So, guys, it's time to wrap up another packed episode. I'd like to thank you both for coming on board tonight. Well, thank you very much for having me. Yeah, it's cool. Sorry. A man of many words. No, no, no. I'm an American, so I. It's not that there's so much many words. Spoken very quickly words. We'll just slow it down for you. Eh, you know. <laughs> good, good old Richard Volves always busts on my chops for that one. It was lovely to meet you anyway, John. That was good to finally talk to you live. One of these days I'll get my butt over there. We'd also like to thank uh, Richard J. Bartlett for chatting with us. I'd also like to thank everybody who sent in messages of birthday wishes. So that leaves us one thing to say. Take care, one and all. Thanks for listening. And we'll talk with you all again really soon. Toodles! Well, that about wraps it up for this episode of TGP Nominal. If you want to get in touch with us, then... Send an email to garbagepod at virginmedia.com, where your input is our output. Or click the social media icons at the top left of the page over at tgpnominal.weebly.com. If you would like to subscribe to any of our podcasts, you can do so via iTunes, the RSS feed, and also Stitcher and TuneIn On Demand Radio. And you can listen to me going solo, bringing you the latest in movies and home theater for regular people in the Widescreen podcast over at widescreen.org. Don't forget to rate and review us. If you like what we're doing here, then why not buy us a pint by clicking on the donate button on any of the podcast pages. And don't forget to spread the word about us. Station, this is Houston ACR. Thank you. That concludes the event. <laughs>